Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Hey, this is Sean. This is Jerry. And this is another episode of the Great Expectations Podcast. And we are here with one of our favorite people from our local comic book shop. He's a regular at our store. Um, we know him as JJ. You on Twitter might know him better as Qui-Gon Jim. Or you all might also know him as the only man who's ever worked the term lawn sausage into a CBR review. <laughs> comic book resources very own, Jim Johnson. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's good to be here, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It's been a long time coming. You were one of the first people we talked about inviting on oh, we, a year ago, when we had already been discussing doing this podcast for three months. Well, you know my busy schedule. You know, traveling all over uh, Livonia. You know, <laughs> um, JJ. When I first met you, he tried to uh, help me out in the worst. I got saddled with a terrible nickname, not nickname, but term <laughs> in the store because, well, well, uh, let us know what it was. Oh, I will. Uh, <laughs> JJ at the time, a uh, group would get together on Tuesday nights at the shop and we would do quick, uh, two minute, three minute reviews of books that were coming out the next day for the website. JJ was very good at it. I was slightly intimidated. And, uh, First week in I that I volunteered to try to chip in, I think I did a really like softball issue of X-Men, which everybody kind of rolled their eyes at, because of course I'm going to say good things about the X-Men. So, the next week, I sweat and bullets, like I gotta come up with something good that's really going to make <laughs> these guys know that I'm serious about helping out. And uh, I think it was Greg Pack had written a Magneto, Magneto Testament. No, no, no. Yes, he did. But it was the it was the Red Skull version of that. Oh yeah, like they'd done the Magneto book, and then they oh, were yeah, doing yeah, the yeah. young Johann Schmidt <laughs> story. Yeah. And I, when I read the first issue, obviously they have to go back to his youth with what leads him up to being the, becoming the Red sure. Skull. He was very so, sympathetic. So, totally sympathetic. <laughs> it was a great book. Completely sympathetic. So I went up there, and I, you know, I was like, oh, I'm really. I'm doing awesome because I'm not picking an X-Men book. I'm picking this weird Red Skull book. How can I try to make this positive? And so I explained that I sympathized with where he was coming from because reading the story, he's like abused. And <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, oh. And so then I got saddled with um, being a Nazi sympathizer. Right. And this is where, was this the day you made friends with Baron Strucker? That is the day. He yeah. was like, I like the cut of that guy's gym. Wow. <laughs> I, I see, had I known that, I never would have left to your defense. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so how did JJ it got, improve things? Well, he was the only one that didn't. Cause I think you could tell that it, uh, uh, see, these guys were giving it to him so good all by themselves. I figured <laughs> I didn't need to chime in. And you didn't even bring up the part about being the child hater too, there was that element. <laughs> um, what but, was, what but, did I say? But but the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, let, let's put it to rest now. Okay, Sean was absolutely right. That that book was amazing, and and you can cast all the stones you want, but go. I don't even remember what it was called, so I, I can't even tell people where to find it. But 
that 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 was an awesome story, and Sean was absolutely right. And just because you sympathize with a villain, doesn't make you a fascist pig. Exactly. <laughs> Every villain starts out as an innocent kid. Yeah, I mean, you know, Johann Schmidt, man. I mean, I I totally get why he became the Red Skull after that. You know, I'm I'm surprised I'm I'm surprised any of us are still here with 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 that. Red so. Skull Incarnate. Yeah, I, yeah, that's okay. right. That was yeah. what it was called. Yeah. yeah, and the covers on that were David Aha covers. They were yeah. awesome. But yeah, the right. the thing with with Schmidt was that he did have that opportunity where he could have turned the other way, and the path was laid out for him, and it wouldn't have even really been difficult to to like become the good guy. And in the end, he just he wanted to be the villain, so he yeah. blew it. Go read it. And no, I'm not a shill for Marvel. I'm just calling it as I see it. We're all shills for Marvel. Well, yeah, we are. But, uh, <laughs> on this are. podcast. Look at where we are. Hey, oh, I, yeah, we should I, mention you know, we are recording from Sean's Marvel Room tonight. We're finally back. Tr- trust me, I've been writing for CBR for a year. It's not the first time I've been called a shill for Marvel. Well, yeah, wear I, it like a badge of honor. The worst part is the first, the first review you ever did for CBR, I was all excited. So, of course, I read it right away. And I came bursting in on Wednesday to pick up my books. And I was like, oh, I read your first review. And then I read the comments. And he was like, don't tell me. <laughs> was that, was that it was the a- la- Age of Ultron? You and I were the only per- people on the planet at that point who liked Age of Ultron. Yeah. So I was super excited oh, about it. your review, but man. Yeah, that, that, that's funny because that, that was, act, that was probably my third or fourth. CBR review. It might have been my first Marvel review, though. Yeah, that's why it would have popped yeah. up on the radar. And, and you uh, write about... Yeah, that... Yeah, that. JJ's been dropping stories on us all night, and it's made me very uncomfortable. Oh, I dropped Archie stories on these guys. That That's why none of that's in the Archie's podcast. cool. He's, he's not a threat. He's not the enemy. But, he's got uh, two women. I mean... I ain't he, by DC. He's tapping two comic book girls. Why would I ever have a problem with <laughs> that? Comic book crush, Betty or Veronica? That's tough. Betty. Both. Betty. Both. That's the right answer. Yes, it's That's both. the right answer. Archie but is at a the same smart time. ginger. At the same time. I saw a great uh, picture on Tumblr of the three of them asleep in the sack together. Made asleep? me happy. Asleep? They all was post. They were all very tired. So, okay. Left to the imagination, yeah. but you kind of picked up what was going down. You know they're naked. Or going You can up. see all their clothes on the ground. Yeah, okay. The all right, wow. Lube. Wow, I, I I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> Whoa. No. no. All right, no. so we've known you for years, but the people that haven't. So what got you into comics specifically? What, what got, led you to the X-Men? What got me into comics and what led me to the X-Men? Why? I will tell you. All right. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, okay. So actually, full, full confession time. All right. I'm, I'm actually, I, I started as an Avengers guy. All right. Which I guess is okay. I mean, it's, it's Marvel, right? Yeah. But no, I, We're when I, bleep that it, it was, it was, <laughs> it was the <laughs> that after I made repeated attempts to get into comics as a younger child, I, I had tried you know, some, uh, some gold key and even some Archies and a couple <laughs> and none of it really stuck until I picked up the Marvel Comics Super Special featuring Kiss. 
All right. Because <laughs> I was a Kiss fan before I was a comic fan. Still am. And anyone who read that knows that that featured an appearance by the Av- All right. So that's what got me buying the Av- So this is what year? 1977. Oh wait. 1977. <laughs> so, 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 um, hang on. I gotta take my medicine. So, so, uh, I, that got me into comics. And then, uh, the following year, um, I was at, uh, I was at a bookstore and it was before I even knew that comic shops existed. And I found an issue on the stands of Uncanny X-Men, and I think it was number 112. And it had the Beast, either on the cover or on one of the first few pages, I don't remember. But the irony is, I I saw the Beast, and I am go, oh, what's an hmm. doing in this X-Men comic? Right. right. <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't know any of that history, right? Yeah. So not knowing that, ignorance being bliss and all that. I bought that first issue of Uncanny, my first issue of Uncanny X-Men, which um, was the one where, where Magneto had captured all of them underneath his base at the, uh, wherever it was, yeah. South Pole or whatever it was. Your first yep, issue was South the one Pole. where he was wheeling Xavier in the wheelchair. He would have been on the cover for that one. That was right after that. Okay. That was right after that. This right. was the one, this uh-huh. was the one where, where Magneto beat the team single-handedly, and he had them all chained up in these contraptions. That the took one away. after the the circus episode or the circus. Yeah, well, yeah. So yeah. one fourteen. No, one thirteen. One. You you guys are better at these numbers than I am. I just remember talking about it on the show, and Sean and I were. I mean, I I just felt glee reading those issues because they were so effing good. Sean's that's one thirteen. Yeah, it was the one. It was the one before that. That was the, that, that's the one I picked up. Oh yeah. Okay. And, and okay. so, so right. Beast isn't on the cover, but, but he's in that issue. And right. I remember seeing the Beast leafing through that and thinking, oh my God, an Avenger is appearing in the X-Men. And I had no idea that the Beast was one of the founding members of the team. I, I had no idea. <laughs> that didn't matter. So, so I picked it up and honest to God, I mean, that, the, the, the writing and the art, Claremont and Byrne and Austin, I mean, I realized right away I was, I was just a teenager, but I understood, I mean, this is true excellence in art. And that had me forever hooked on, on, on Uncanny X-Men. So, so, uh, on that day, uh, wait, that's an Avengers line. Uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, that, from that day going forward, I, I was forever an X-Men fan after that, um, through good times and bad. Well, there's been plenty of both. Oh yes, yes, and and you know, I I did fall from the faith. I I did I did, I I didn't read X Men. This is sacrilegious to say this, and we're here to talk about a book with religious overtones. So I'm going to start with being sacrilegious, saying that <laughs> Operation Zero Tolerance, one of Mister Pigeon's favorite stories, is what drove me from the book for probably oh. Years, I mean, five years, probably. I don't remember when I got back in, but uh, it had just it had fallen too far from the concept. They're 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 just uh, you know Claremont when he when he was finally pushed out, just the magic was never was never there. And frankly, by that time, there were a lot more comics to buy beyond Marvel and superhero stuff. So I immersed mm-hmm. myself in other stuff. 
but I got back on board uh, years ago. It was back when uh, I honestly can't remember when I actually fully jumped back on board. But I, <laughs> I can tell you. See, see Sean. Sean's going to hate this. Sean's going to hate this. But what brought me, one of the stories that brought me back permanently to X-Men was Grant, Grant Morrison. Morrison. <laughs> you are not alone, no, man. Sean, no. you can say what you want, but there, I've heard this story so many times. No, oh, I, I know. And I, whether I, or not you hate the story, like, we still kind of owe him for, like, recreating a fan base for the book. Everybody knows that my reason for disliking the Morrison stuff is not because of the story. It's a personal yeah, it's reason personal. Yeah, that I'm yeah, affected yeah. by it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm able to look at it now the, as something different. The, uh, the thing, now, now, now the end of Morrison's run, I, I think really tanked. But yeah. I thought the first, so, I don't know, eight issues or so, I mean, I just thought he had the characters down. Frank Quitely's art was probably the best he's ever done. That grew on me. Cause yeah. I always complained mm-hmm. about it, but his art actually really grew on me. Yep. They, and there's had, a, uh, they had some pencils at New York Comic Con. There's what, a original from, from that oh, book. Oh, yeah. wish I'd seen that. There's a because I, I was never a big Quietly fan. A lot of, I used to call yeah. him Squiggles McGee, and then <laughs> everyone had Parkinson's in his. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a video floating around YouTube, like a 15 minute interview of like not even an interview. It's like what he does during the day to create, and like his studio, like it's a walkthrough of. I never got around to watching it's, that. Awesome. You need to find it. And if you can do an editor's note to letting everybody know what that was. Editor's note, that's a BBC film called What Do Artists Do All Day? And it is on YouTube. Because we love you, we're putting links for it directly into the show notes. You're welcome. It's actually really cool. It just shows like his process of getting ready, and like yeah. it made That's me actually like him a lot more. Like seeing I, that, I, I thought that was the peak of his stuff. I mean, I I, I still like Quietly's stuff. I, I I think he's gotten a little. Um, I think he phoned in a lot now. I mean, he's still pretty good, but but that was I thought he was at his creative peak. And wasn't early on in that series? Didn't didn't the Beast get like the living snot pounded out of him? In a sequence, I, I I'm trying to remember. It's starting to be a long time ago, but what was Lion Beast at that point? Yeah, yeah he he I was Lion remember. Beast, and everyone hated the Lion Beast. So just watching him getting the snot pot out of him kind of was <laughs> there was you felt bad, but at the same time you were kind of glad that you know maybe maybe he would somehow get uh, yeah radically deformed and go I back to his old this look out or something. Years later, which actually made me feel like a little bit better, but also angrier at the whole run. I didn't know that, um, cause I hated Emma. Oh, bitch! Just sudden, which is weird, cause I was a big Generation X fan, so I had seen mm-hmm. the genesis of Emma, oh, ho, slowly becoming a good guy. But it was that, like, quick turn that Morrison did, where it was like, nope, here she is, she's a full-fledged X-Men, and she's one of the gang. Uh-huh. That kind of threw me, and I found out years later, reading some interview with him, where he wanted Colossus. And since Colossus had just sacrificed himself probably four or five issues beforehand because the other thing that threw me off with new x-men was i don't like it when they do the seven months later (laughs) like where nothing where you're supposed to just fill in the blanks with what could have happened or (laughs) and so i found how many many happens how many events could have happened at seven months exactly (laughs) so um i guess that the whole secondary mutation all of that nonsense emma having diamond skin is all because he wanted Colossus. 
Oh, I, I never knew that. He did it to mess with him? No, no, like no, no, no. He wanted Colossus, and when he couldn't get Colossus, secondary mutations was his answer. And so well, he was hey. like, I'll put Emma on the team because she's got telepathic abilities, so that covers my telepath. And then, bam, she's got diamond hard skin. If, yeah, if you so can't she's get a, a tank now. Yeah. So okay. if you can't get a big, burly Russian guy, just get a real slight, petite blonde, I guess. Okay, got it. So I really did like Morrison's stuff, Carrie's though. dating <laughs> history in college. <laughs> That's right. That's right, yeah. But the uh, Russian guys did not work out. Does anyone else think Scott... I mean, they worked out. They just didn't work out with me. That's, yeah, okay. Can we move on? Sorry. Um, does anyone else think Scott and Emma's just all wrong, though? Yes. I mean, okay. Yes. yes. All right, all right. Yes. Yeah. Well, we don't have to worry. They finally fixed it, yeah. hopefully. Boy, just wait till Gene comes back next time. <laughs> Wouldn't want to be Scott. Everyone hates him already. <laughs> Not everybody, Sean. Oh, Cyclops is right. Man, do we have some stuff to talk about regarding that later tonight. Woohoo! I can't wait to get, because that was the part that gave me the goosebumps. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. We'll get there. Was it something I... So, it's in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know okay. if you had some type of insider information yeah, about Cyclops say, man, that you were just about to bust us Yeah, out. what about this dating history that involves Cyclops? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? <laughs> well, we better... it was someone Kitty I, had a younger sister. It was some one-eyed girl that you dated. Yeah, okay, yeah. She she stared daggers at you, and that was felt just like being an optic blast victim. <laughs> yes. Yes, got it. Yes. Got it. Oh, new, new X-Men has a logo just like Axis. If you turn it upside down, it says New X-Men. Mind blown. Don't believe me? You got one of Morrison's issues? Pick it, find the first, uh, Morrison issue. So, so, Sean's got his crack team of researchers. <laughs> Sean's got his crack team looking for that issue. Too bad this isn't a visual thing, guys, because we've got half the audience putting pause on this, looking for that logo now. Very first issue, when they retitled it from X-Men to New X-Men with Morrison's first issue. It's a very clever uh, design where, you know, new and men, when you turn it upside down, says new and men. He ain't kidding. See? See? Holy shit. I never noticed that. Aha. Now I love it. Ha 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 ha. See? That's all it takes. Little production. Okay. Do you know who made the logo? No clue. Tom Orzakowski. Let's say he did. I have no idea. I don't know either. I just wish I did. No, I, I know I, that I, Jim Steranko made the original uh, modernized one that's on Ooh. these covers. So, we asked you to pick an X-Men story. Yes. And you chose? I chose the 1982 graphic novel entitled X-Men God Loves, Man Kills, an instant classic. An instant classic is not part of the title, folks. I embellished that, but it's true. They could have put it on the cover. They might as well have. That is true. So yeah, this, so this, this was a story. It, it, it's held in pretty high regard, I think, just by about everybody who's read it and who is an X-Men fan. You know, people talk about the Dark Phoenix saga and, and people talk about Days of Future Past. Those were awesome. I, I put Days of Future Past probably probably pretty close to this, but uh, I think this graphic novel is is probably my my all time favorite. 
Um, the, the, I, I guess the luxury, um, maybe that's not the term, but the, the, uh, the advantage I had was I, I was actually around when this came out. I mean, I, I was, I was 19 years old when this thing came out. And I remember all of the, um, all of the, I, what's the term? All of the, um, trepidation there was regarding this before it came out. What, what you have to remember is the graphic novel format was a pretty new thing to comics back then. I mean, Will Eisner had done, um, you know, like a contract with God just a few years before this. And Stan and Jack had done that, that Silver Surfer, um, graphic novel, although it wasn't called a graphic, nobody called them graphic novels, at least, at least those. So it was a fairly new idea. And Marvel, if you remember, latched on the idea with, the death of Captain Marvel. That was the first one they did. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of knocked by a lot of people because it, it, I, I, I mean, I actually loved that story, but, um, you know, there weren't any big surprises there. It was a great Jim Starlin, Captain Marvel, Thanos thing, but the criticism was, hey, five or ten years ago, this would have just been an annual, you know, it wouldn't have been a five or six dollar you know, book, which was expensive back right. in those days. People still make the same arguments now. Yeah, yes, they do. And, uh, and so Marvel, but you know, Marvel took the plunge. They, they launched this quarterly line of graphic novels. And the fifth one was this one here, God Loves Man Kills. And so, you know, the first ones they had done, uh, were not met with any kind of like tremendous reaction. I mean, the death of Captain Marvel was like, the second one was a Pete Craig Russell thing that just wasn't appreciated by a lot of mainstream fans. Starlin did another one, Dread Star, with number three. You know, that wasn't met with pure positive criticism. Number four was actually New Mutants, which is kind of ironic. X-Men podcasts and all that. <laughs> people people seemed to dig that, but there was the same criticism. Why wasn't that just, you know, like a regular two-issue or three-issue story, whatever it would have filled up? But, but this was different. God, God Loves Man Kills was, took full use of the graphic novel format. All right. Because it wasn't just an overblown annual. It was, it was something that was done because this was marketed as something more than just a comic book. It was a story that had a very, anyone who's read it, they, they, they get it. It had very dark, very dark, uh, theme to it. Some very disturbing events. The, the opening of the story. I mean, I, I I don't know how lengthy you guys go into spoilers, but anyone who's read this story and just sees what happens to these two children in the beginning, I mean, it's just it's just creepy. I mean, even and, and it holds it holds up, you know, today. And then there's there's themes of of bigotry and and, and hatred, and there's there's a couple racial slurs thrown in there, and you you would never you would never see any of that in a comic. And, and Marvel, I mean, Marvel wasn't above using colorful metaphors, I guess, as they said in what, Star Trek IV, I think it was. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, you know, you had, you had a, you had a D word and an H word occasionally in Marvel at the time, and, and you had that here, but, but this, this story, as far as I'm aware, was the first mainstream public comic or graphic novel to use the N word. Um, you know, as it relates to, to racism and bigotry and stuff. And the effect of that just was like mind blowing. I mean, just, you, you heard it on TV all the time. You saw it in the papers. You heard it on the street. 
But to see it in what people consider to be an overblown comic book was just genuinely shocking. So, so this, this graphic novel, I mean, as a story, it, it was just absolutely amazing. But Claremont took full advantage of the medium and said, okay, I'm going to do something that maybe he couldn't or wouldn't do in a mainstream code approved book. And there was nothing gratuitous. There was nothing done for pure shock value. The shocks that were in this book were genuinely to advance the story and were genuinely shocking. And this was the kind of thing that you just don't want to read on the fly a few pages at a time while sitting on the can. I mean, this is something <laughs> you, you want to, you want to like take into your reading room and start a fire in the fireplace and get a nice hot cup of tea and, you know, put on whatever music you, you listen to while reading and actually take an hour or whatever it takes to go through it. It, it was that good. I mean, it was, it was, it was that good. It, it was truly, it truly pushed the boundaries of the medium for the time that Marvel admittedly had not done with these very graphic novels that were intended to, uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that was just, that was just a little background at the time. Um, the one, one thing going into it was people didn't like the fact that Brent Anderson was going to be the artist because they thought, oh, this is a big deal graphic novel. It should have been the return of John Byrne, and, and John Byrne didn't do it. But anyone who's seen this book knows it's just absolutely amazing. It's one of Brent Anderson's, like, earliest works, and mm-hmm. and it's um, it's just... it's. It's just incredible. I mean, it's he, he's gotten better, but that's not to say any of this is bad. I mean, he he just he 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 drew this with with a moodiness and a darkness that perfectly just just synced with what Claremont was trying to do, and it hit it hit on all levels. It was emotionally powerful. It was a great story. It advanced the continuity of the X Men, their relationship with 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 Magneto. It, it did, it did so much that, that held a place in comics at the time, but also like is relevant to now with a lot of the storylines they do in the book. So we're probably out of time, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'll give you, I'll give you it. It's your show. I'll give you a chance to talk now. Well, I mean, the thing that hit me about the art was I knew that, um, unfortunately this was one of those books that I had kind of always heard about, but by the time that I was able to, afford more expensive comics um this would have been out of print and pretty hard to find in local comic shops around here or at shows so it wasn't until a few years ago that i was able to pick up a reprint of the hardcover and i'm I'm glad that i read it when i did because i think as a kid specifically growing up in like a religious household i think this would have been the thing that could have really divided like i mean this would have fucked up my childhood if I had read this as a kid (laughs) because it would have shown me the side of something that I had truly never really been exposed to yet in my life and one of the things that I loved about the art now is when I was a kid growing up in the 90s I had some pretty terrible ideas of what was good art which unfortunately now that I'm (laughs) that I'm older fortunately now that I'm older like I can look at certain things and realize that Joe Madriara isn't the greatest artist ever (laughs) I liked him when I was a kid but there's some shit where I'm like man that is way out of proportion um we all grow up Sean yeah but the thing that I noticed is that this just feels um people say it all the time now and it gets thrown around a lot but 
this feels cinematic. Like when I was, I, yeah. I did exactly what you said you should have done. I sat down the other night to reread this for the podcast and I made some hot chocolate in my Modoc mug, put uh-huh. on some records, sat down, read this in one sitting, and I texted Jerry right away and I was like, I think that if they had, if they had avoided all the X2 nonsense with the connection to Wolverine and blah, 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 and just adapted this from the page, yeah. words, everything, like this is your script, this is your storyboard, yeah. they would have made a billion dollars and they would have won Oscars. I, you That's know what? what I I'll tell you, I have nothing bad to say about X-Men United, but I totally agree. I totally agree. I think as great as that movie was, this was a superior story. This, this would have stood up better as a film. Absolutely. But yeah, I I I'm still thinking about that Modoc mug. I I I I, I need to get me. Uh, I need I need a. Uh, all right, yeah, I, I need to hit the the store on the way back. Get some cool drinkware to read my yeah. comics with. So going back to the art, um, you mentioned the criticism about Brent Anderson, and and while I agree, a a burn book may have been a better seller, and it probably would have looked great. Um, Brent Anderson had X-Men cred at this point. And he... He did. He, he drew some of my f- favorite X-Men stories prior to this. Like, X-Men 160 was is still one of my favorite X-Men oh, yeah. comics. The Limbo story yeah. is one of my favorite books of all time. That was just before this, I and, believe. And he did that uh, fanfare... Or, he, didn't he do one of the fanfare issues? He no. did, uh, he did X-Men 144. 144, the yeah. despair yeah. issue, which was yeah. great. And he did the annual five, the Fantastic Four annual. Yes. That's right. And, yeah. That's which right. was out of this world. Yeah. Inked by Bob McCloud. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm with, just mentioning that for no reason that, at all. Yeah, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> it had that beautiful scene of, uh, of Storm and, uh, and Sue Storm. Ha! Huh, that's kind of funny. Both in these awesome, like, gowns. I remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Storm and Sue Storm. Comic that, Crush! Right? Yeah. yeah. I did not put that together. I but just, she was, she wasn't Sue Storm anymore. She was oh, Susan see, that You're right. She you're was right. a married that's my, woman. That's my sexist side showing there. Um, so, so yeah, I thought I still think he's a great artist, and and uh, I don't think this book would have been this book without him. But the the modern collected version of this shows what an alternate version of this book could have looked like. Because as I just learned, not having seen that before, um, Neil Adams was originally hired by Jim Shooter to take a crack at this book, and he generated six pages of pencils. No blanking way way and i'm hold those pages up to the microphone sean i will these pencils are so exquisite this isn't x-men what was the the first x-men that he did a couple years ago this isn't that this is like yeah, those are awesome this is like uh the the um x-men 62 but grown up you know he's he's evolved more um I mean, this, he's, he's come even further as an artist and they do this whole thing. I'm going to put all this on our Tumblr. So make sure you come visit our Tumblr page after this episode releases. You'll start seeing some of this, but his interpretation of this is in the, the actual book, 
uh, the opening scene is two, um, an 11 and a nine year old, uh, brother and sister running from what turns out to be the purifiers yeah. and they're killed in cold blood because they're mutants. And that's how the story opens. But his original opening is the same things happening, but it happens to Magneto. And in the third page of the book, Magneto, the, the scariest mutant in, in all of the X books is, is murdered. And, huh. and, uh, and, uh, Professor X senses that this happens. And he calls to the X-Men who are in the middle of a danger room session. And you just see he's calling X-Men. And, but it's like the logo and it radiates from his mind into the room and fills the room. And it's, God, I mean, see, yeah, I mean, this, it would have completely changed the tone of the book. And I yeah. don't know that it works, but the sequence is magnificent. No, I, yeah, we're looking at it now and, and you're absolutely right. There would have been a totally different shock with that scene, but I think long term, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But. I think long term this wouldn't have worked because because the scene as it went in the book, I think carried far more emotional power. That that oh, Mag- yeah. Magneto would have been a shock, but two children carries that emotional power. Right. And then by whacking Magneto, that would have killed one of the elements of the book. Sure. That that sure. made it work so well, where where the two sides unite to, to stop a, a a definite common foe. The one, the one piece I'm missing is, um, what, uh, Neil Adams' plan for the rest of the book would have been had he killed Magneto, because Magneto plays a central role in this story. Yeah. So obviously, something very different would have had to happen. And I think the, the most important part of the story for me now is, um, that developing that relationship between Magneto and the X-Men. This is the first time we see Magneto since issue 150. Yep. Yeah. And um, this, this starts the road to issue 200 where he decides he's he's a changed person. He sees Charles's vision now and, yeah. and he takes on the mantle of leadership to, for the X-Men at that point. And this is this starts to precipitate all that happening. So killing him, Jim, you're right. Like it would have completely changed. I, I mean, the that that there is an alternate reality for you. I, I mean, you know, because because that that. The, 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 it set the status quo for years, like you say. And then it gave us one of the coolest scenes in the book, where I think it was the first time where Wolverine put his fist under a, one of the purifier's chins and he pops a claw on each side and then says, that's one snick on the left side. That's two snick on the right side and then want to go for three. That was one of the awesome, most awesome Magneto scenes ever in a comic. Now, I'm a little younger than you, but that scene, that was like the playground water cooler scene for us in, um, I guess I would have discovered this when I, it was, it was probably a year or two after it came out. And, um, God, man, that, that scene, well, that was like what everybody was talking about. And I still remember the first time I saw that. I couldn't believe he could do that. I had no idea. And I, it is, it isn't the first time he'd done it. I know he did it in Giant Size Number One when he cuts that dude's tie in half. He did it with just the one claw, but, uh, yeah. man, that oh, was you're right. 
cool. The, the, um, that it, was like the, I remember where I was when I saw that for the first time kind of scene. In, in trying to avoid having a choking spell, I forgot to close out my point, And that was, it was Magneto who was saying to Wolverine, don't do that. It was, it was Magneto showing restraint. And it was Wolverine ready to go all berserker on this guy. And mm-hmm. keep in mind Wolverine at the time. Yeah, you know, I think at the time, you know, he might not really have been shown to ever kill someone on panel. He might have. I could be wrong. He had a mini series where he might have done that. But, but, um, that was later. It was a that pretty, was shortly after that this. was after. That's right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, I remember in the early days anyway, whenever Wolverine apparently killed someone, it was, you know, you'd see him drag someone off panel and then you'd see Snicked and, and Storm <laughs> and Nightcrawler almost fell off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, if memory serves, I mean, I think this was the first time you, you, you actually thought, you know, that, that Wolverine was going to pop someone right on panel. And here's Magneto saying, come on, there, there's a better way to do this. And I just thought, oh my God, this so works. This so works. Who would have thought that would have been the scenario? So you we know, wouldn't have got that if we had if we had this original uh, version. My interpretation of the way it went down was that Magneto stops him and tortures the shit out of the guy. Absolutely. Afterwards, <laughs> so he didn't kill him, but he. Well, I mean, you know, that it's, dude had a really yeah, bad day. The, the irony, what you know, you you think Wolverine's? Or I mean, I did it again. Magneto's saying, "Come on, let's not do this," and then the next page, Magneto, it looks like he rips the guy apart. But, I mean, you know, kind of the way Claremont narrates it is that, yeah, Magneto does his thing and the guy talks. You know, he doesn't kill him. He, you know, yeah. Wolverine would have put a would have put a claw through his brain. Yeah, these guys were, they had on some kind of super suits and they were, they were handling the X-Men at one yeah, point in, in the middle of the book. And had Magneto not shown up, they may have been in some trouble. Um, Colossus yeah. was in deep doo-doo. So Magneto saves the day, but he like rips their their armor off of them and then wraps them up like mummies with it. In in modern day kids, we would have said the purifiers were owning the X Men in that scene. And you know the imagery here when he stops Wolverine and he says, "I suggest another." How does he say it? May I suggest an alternative? Yeah, and yeah. he's uh, he's doing something with the metal from their suits that looks a lot to me like when he pulls Wolverine's adamantium out. Skull. That's a good point. Yeah. I never thought of that. You're right. And I, I yeah, mean, I'm right. just seeing it now, but the imagery is very similar. That's and... a great point. See now, Sean, I want to make you dig out that issue, but, <laughs> but don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> so again, um, oh, well, I mean, it. No, I get it. I, I, I totally get it. It's kind showed... of another. This, this book ties in closely to X Men United. And, and that part kind of ties into, um, Days of Future Past a little bit. This, the imagery of, um, putting the, the rebar through Wolverine, which was, you know, kind of a copy of the concept of pulling his, yeah. his oh, skeleton out. Yeah. Because, you know, when, they when. He didn't have any adamantium at that point. You know, when, when, when things, I mean, am I jumping ahead if I just refer to the ending? Oh, no. Without go ahead. giving away. So, so, you know, when, when Magneto kind of agrees to let the X-Men try to carry out their message their way, you know, it shows that, okay, he's not totally on their side. He, he was in this story. Mm-hmm. And he's willing, he's not exactly on their side, but he's not going to oppose them anymore. He's mm-hmm. going to let them try to do things their way and hope that it works. And he, and he says something to that effect. 
um, at the end. Mm-hmm. And so if you go back to Days of Future Past from a couple years before, where you see that they're in the future, they're all locked up together, and they're all on the same side, it, it kind of gives indication that, yeah, this future is coming to pass because there's there's a spot where Magneto is actually on the side of the team or at least not or at least not opposing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the, it's an awesome, awesome part of the book at the end where he's in the X mansion sitting in Professor X's office and they're just, they're talking, they're talking about their ideals. You know, th- this is not, uh, Lee and Kirby X-Men, you know, w- where there's a villain and there's the good guys. This is, this is like, people with two different ideas about how the world should be you know and how they, they agree on how the world should be but they differ in how they should get there absolutely and and they actually talk it through for once you know and you can see that the tone between the two is starting to change yeah. and and he had talked in their their last meeting in 150 he had you know he had he had told them that he wasn't their enemy. They, he didn't look at them as his enemy anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and the only reason that there was friction was because they were always trying to stop him. Absolutely. You know, and, and, uh, but now he's gotten to the point where he's, he's well, decided, um, you're not, I, ra- rather than us fight, let's see if you can actually do what you think you can do. And if you can't, then I'm there waiting. And you know, his, his line, it, it's funny because in that, in at that X-Men 150, remember the turning point for him was when he thought he killed Kitty. Kitty yeah. Remember? He had, yeah. he, he had like this, this crisis of conscience at that moment. And then the irony in this book was Kitty near the end says to him, you know, Scott might be right. We might win. That's what, she, that's the line of hers. And then his reply to me is one of the greatest lines ever. He said, for all our sakes, Mutant and human, I hope you do. But should you fail, it will be my turn as he flies off. Yeah. And that so sums up Magneto. It's like, again, I will show restraint going back to that other scene. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't work, I'm going to do things my way. And as the future showed in the years after, that's the, exactly what what he's done more more than once. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to get this Magneto again in Cullen Bunn's series, which is out of this world. Isn't it? It's a really it's, great series. It's I, I, so good. Yeah. I love the art. I love did the it, story. Did it get better? Yes. Okay. All right. I thought it started out okay, but once it started to tie into basically him leading up to Axis and everything that we know now, there's a lot of... I just, I had trouble, uh, Magneto living in a Motel 6 didn't do it for me. <laughs> right, it's a little, um, it's a little movie-esque, you know, it's got yeah. a little bit of the Fastbender yeah. hunting Nazis yeah, yeah, vibe, exactly. yeah. you know. Right. Why I, would... I, I know it seems like a really silly aspect of the book to talk about, but talking about the cinematic aspects of the, uh, the book... There is one part that does Jerry's least favorite thing, which is characters talking on TV. That's a big. Yeah, Jerry hates that. <laughs> and it it really? it, it, it kind of, it works in this book. I was right. I was rereading it. I was like, oh, there it is. I wonder if we're going to talk about this, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it it works in this instance because you you get to see um 
a character central to the story in Professor X and William Stryker talking to each other rather than, you know, a, a, a movie or a newscaster telling yeah. you the plot. You get two people discussing and you get the X-Men's reaction to it. So this is a situation where yeah. I thought it was used that, well. That's a device that is used a lot, but it works. You're right. It, yeah. it, it works Sometimes perfectly. it sucks. Nowadays, I would have been on a smartphone screen. Yep. Right. Man, times have changed. But did you notice, in that scene, they're, they're sitting kind of in the, I don't know what you'd call that room, but um, that room, like, they took that and they used that in the set for X2. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, that, yeah. I, I, it just, it looks so familiar and so... I don't know, man. You know, like in, that's the X Mansion. In, in X two, you know, when 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 Wolverine, you know, was fighting off, you know, everyone breaking in, and they break I through thought, the secret panel. And I stuff. thought of that scene right. in this book. Absolutely, yeah, you know, because I mean, I think like we were alluding to earlier, anyone who saw that movie who's read this is immediately making comparisons, and mm-hmm. you know, there there's there's the purifiers as opposed to the purists who feel that Stryker never should have not been a televangelist in the movie <laughs> uh-huh. you know which i i think he, i i think they kind of made his character a little more mundane in that movie N- nothing wrong with it but mm-hmm. i think as a you know a televangelist when you look back at it this this was in the days before like all these crooked tv evangelists were getting busted right. for all their infidelity yeah. so this was almost like a foreshadowing of the dark side of televangelism not that there's a light side but but you know i mean here was a guy preaching hatred you know and that's really not the same thing i guess as as, as having infidelity against tammy faye baker or whatever. i mean who, who who would blame the guy right but but but, but i mean you know it, it it showed a dark side to televangelism which i think you know i, I think people might have been afraid to, to touch at a time just because you know religion wasn't something you you poked fun at in a normal comic but this format allowed claremont to do it I could see why Hollywood would steer away from the televangelist aspect because I, I went before this recording last night, I went and I actually went on Goodreads and was reading reviews of the book just to see what people's impressions of the book were. And a lot of the comments were complaints that Stryker was, um, you know, this one dimensional demonized uh-huh. version of of religion that that is cartoonish and that doesn't exist and and um and I I think there's probably a real fear of alienating a good piece of audience because of that kind of reaction. So these it. are recent reviews. Oh yeah. So yep. so here's what's changed: the whole politically correct movement. Yeah. That no one even the term didn't even exist back when this came out. Sure. And I don't think there's anything in here that we would be considered politically incorrect, but I think there's a lot of... Um, a couple words, but... <laughs> well, sure. No, I mean, on the surface there right. is. Sure. But I mean, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff where it's like to, to directly confront bigotry as, mm-hmm. as this book did in such a graphic and direct manner, I think nowadays is something that a lot of publishers would be afraid to do. Even in a post-comic code world, mm-hmm. I think just society, you know, in, in some ways is a bigger 
police force than the CCA ever was, right? Because right. you're not going to publish anything. That, Twitter's going to get you if you cross yeah, the line. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah. so I mean, you were kind of free of that back then. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I don't remember, you know, I don't I don't remember a lot of bad reaction to this story after it came out. I mean, I think. I think what this book largely did was it shut up all the naysayers who said, oh, Brent Anderson's art is going to suck and the story is going to suck. And, you know, I, I think, I think everyone involved proved it was an awesome story and, and the critiques were largely positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember anyone ever coming back and saying, oh, this is offensive because Kitty uses, uh, you know, the N word, mm-hmm. you know, or because, um, uh, who was, who was her, uh, Stevie, her dance instructor. Right kind of agreed with her, you know, to herself that she was right. You know, her, her, her feelings about accepting hatred and and trying to just blow it off because it's only words. Should we recap what exactly happened while we're talking about it since we're on? Maybe that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, Um, you've got it. Yeah. You can find it faster than it's just, well, um, you know, it opens up with Kitty getting into a fight with one of the kids at the dance (coughs) studio and they're uh, a boy. Yes. He punches her in the face. He does. Gives her see, a black eye. you wouldn't see that in a comic now. You know, that's just a auxiliary element. But the, yeah, go ahead. The thing yeah. that bothered me most about all of this is, okay, Peter shows up. Yeah. And he doesn't do shit about it. No, I, but... <laughs> I, he, he acts like an adult. I but, love the fact that Peter basically gives him a look of, like, do it again. I dare you. And he Because there is that whole... He didn't even armor up to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So the kid's basically explaining that all he was doing was, you know, oh, I was just talking about the striker crusade and all the good it's doing. And Kitty obviously can't explain that she's a mutant, but when Stevie shows up, she tries to diffuse the situation and, oh, it's just words. Everybody's he, settled he now. he called her a mutie lover. Yes. Yeah. And so Kitty explains, how would you feel, Stevie, if he called you? What Or what if he had called me an yes. lover? Yes. Would you be so damn tolerant then? And she storms off into the night. And Stevie's left there, obviously, with the um, shaking fist. She yeah. realizes that, like, Kitty's right. Like, I totally failed that test there yeah, as a exactly. mentor slash adult. Which leads right into the... Um, Kitty gets back to the mansion. Everybody asks what's going on. But the yeah. debate between Stryker and Logan starts up. And you know what? I, I I could be wrong, but I think this is the first time that that allegory between real world racism and the fictional racism against mutants was actually directly spelled out, re- referenced in the yeah. comic. I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I I'm yes, I agree. If it isn't the very first, it's the best they did with it. Yeah, like that's I mean, what yeah. I'm saying. Like honestly, if if someone comes up to you and goes. What are the X-Men all about? You can hand them this, and it covers everything. And I well love, said, absolutely. I love absolutely. the fact that, like, yes, there's action in this, but it didn't feel, like, none of it, none of it really feels overly, like, hurrah, comic booky. Like, there's a real, especially towards the end, like, when we get to the end, like, it just, there was, the whole thing just feels really Powerful, mature, and adult, and it's not, nobody comes up, like, the heroes don't really, like, save the day. It's just, there's light shown on the issue. Right. Like, not everyone is, even when Stryker straight up does what he does in the very end of the book, I'm certain that there are still people out there who are like, 
stuff that no. the muties, man. No, you're right. Like, they they well, pushed yeah. him to do it. This yeah. this wasn't the X Men fighting the Blob, and they beat him, and they put him in jail, and it's the end. It, it was a far more serious subtext than that. Mm-hmm. And this was the kind of story that, aside from the expensive format, that you could show to people and say, "This is what comic books can be." I mean, we wouldn't have said comic book; we would have said graphic novel. You know, I just realized it does say Marvel graphic novel on there. So I guess they did. Mm-hmm. I don't think they invented the term, but I think that's, I think the cover by, you know, was probably the first to directly, you know, call it that, you know, on, on, you know, as it, as it's seen on the newsstand. But you could, you could actually show this to someone. I mean, I wouldn't say any issue of, any issue Claremont did from this era, you know, wasn't bad by any means. I mean, it was, it was past, it was past the peak. I mean, you know, I think, I think, I think, I mean, it's arguable. I mean, I think, you know, Claremont was on the book for a long time. I think the peak of it was in Uncanny X-Men was right before this, maybe, maybe right around the time, maybe X-Men 150 kind of in my mind is kind of the peak of, of, of Claremont's uh, run on the title. Although he did a very long run after that, that was, that was still very good. But I think if you picked up any of those issues that showed you know, the X-Men fighting the Morlocks or fighting the Sentinels or, or whatever, as awesome as those were, you know, those had some degree of an ending, at least until next time. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, Sean, this one doesn't. This shines light on a modern issue and says, look, we're not going to win this by just punching people. You know, we've got to, yeah. we've got, we've got to, we've got to change people's attitudes. We, we've got to reach out to people who are afraid of us and say, look, we're not your enemy. And, and you know what? I mean, how many time? How many years? How many millennium has the real world been trying to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, that's not something you solve in a, in a. How many pages is this? You don't solve it in a sixty-four not, page sixty-four page comic book. Well, it, I think this is a storyline that kind of it starts with um, Days of Future Past and is kind of brought to a head here. Days of Future Past, they they're avoiding a possible future. Where yes. something terrible could happen, and here they learn that it's happening, despite that. That's a good point. That's a good point. And it's, um, it's, it's and already we'll see, started. You know, there's there's all the the super heroic adventures that that continue on from here, you know, into Mute Massacre and and Inferno and you know all the big events and all that crap. But underlying all of that is this story thread of, um. Apprehension about the the mutant yep. threat growing, you know, and you you have the scene where Professor X gets stabbed on campus, um, <sighs> just all kinds of crap leading up to issue two hundred, and then you know the mutant massacre happens after that, and uh, it, that's like the mutant massacre. I think is kind of the bookend to God loves man kills. They're unrelated. In who's in charge, but there is a symmetry that's that's clear in the first two pages of both stories. They're almost identical with two, you know, the 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 brother and sister getting killed at the beginning of God Love Man Kills, and then the the Hellfire Club agent and that what's her name Tommy or whatever the chick that can fold herself flat escaping in the rail yard. Leading into the meat massacre. Oh, yeah. It's like identical. I never yeah. thought of that. I never it's thought of that. It's identical. Yeah. And, uh, 
So like that is, that is the mutants days of future past, I guess, in New York at least. I, I think the most interesting thing that I took away from this whole time period of the X-Men, um, is that the thing that I realize that is missing from the X books that doesn't get me as excited as they did, you know, during the reread of this is um, the human element. Yeah, like that's Very really true. I never realized how much that is gone from the X Men books now mm-hmm. until we went back and started rereading the Claremont stuff, and they yeah. had this really great way, especially here between the Stevie and Kitty scenes and and the police officer towards the end of the book that confronts Stryker, like, the the message of the X-Men is horribly lost, I think, now. Now they've yeah. become just mutant Avengers. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it kind of bums me out when I'll visit, like, message boards or whatever, or be talking to someone about the X-Men. They're like, well, you know, it's 2014. Well, uh, You don't, you know, I mean, it's kind of, it's a little outdated, and it's like, I... I Turn on the news. Yeah, yeah, like no, no one did human drama better than Claremont. At least back then, I could probably think of some who do it as good now. But Claremont made human drama exciting, and this story typified that. And and you know what helped? He made it real by making you know the villain a a, a normal human being, right? And and you know the, you know where where do you see all this stuff unfolding? Like you pointed out on television. You know, not, not on some, not on some big screen, you know, in the Cerebro room. It's on television in the living room. Where does this all go down? You know, Madison Square Garden. You know, not, not in the Savage Land. You know, not on Asteroid. It Astor begins Island. in an elementary school playground. Absolutely. It's a very down to earth, everyday type feel that made, that brought this very real issue into this fictional world. And Claremont seized on that for another decade almost. Mm-hmm. You know, before he finally left the book. And the irony is, you know, in the years subsequent to this, like the Mutant Massacre era, and then like he did a lot of these um, standalone stories, um, you know, that would just feature, you know, like a random one that comes to mind is, is one where, um, as I think it was where, oh, I, I Kitty and Ileana and Colossus all get, I, I, I forget what issue, but they all get approached by some thugs who, who want to beat them up or something. You know, I shouldn't even talk to, okay, I can't remember enough about this particular story, but, but point being, there were a lot of these stories where it was just the X-Men ironically being human. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think this issue was kind of like the, 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 uh, introduction of that. He had very much done this in the preceding issues of Uncanny X-Men to some degree, but this, to me, this was the start of where, okay, the X-Men are mutants only by virtue of their powers, but take all that away and they're human beings just like us. And you know what? This is what Claremont did good. They're human beings who sit around and watch TV and play baseball every other issue and all that. But you know what? (laughs) That is what's missing from the book today. Mm -hmm. There's none of that. They're just another superhero team now. And, and, you know, just because there's a, a weekly issue now doesn't, you know, mean you get any more of that drama. There, there was more human drama in this graphic novel probably than a year's worth of Bendis issues. Oh, it's longer than that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Can I, that, it's interesting because if you, if you read Bendis's X-Men, 
if you read Kyle and Yost's X-Men, you know right away that they were heavily influenced by this story. I mean, it's it's completely obvious with Bendis. And Kyle and Yost pick up the purifier thing and the striker thing immediately. Like, I think they touched on it in the new X-Men yes, book they that they did and in Messiah Complex. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, that yeah. was... Like, they were... Claremont was not happy about it. Well... <laughs> Because he always felt this should just be a standalone thing and sure. wasn't happy when it was brought into continuity. But I actually appreciate the fact that it was. Yeah, right. I, I'm. Well, that was something that I was. wanted to talk about. Was, you know, the the perception of the book, whether this happened in quotations or not. Yeah. I, it's, you know, that's it's, it's official now. now. It's in. That's a good. You know that you're but right. I think for a long this, time I don't think it was. Considered. I think you're right. When this came out. I don't think anyone officially said this is going to be an in-continuity story. And when you think about the context of it, look at all the stuff that happens. You know, Magneto kind of, kind of switching sides, you know, somewhat, mm-hmm. or at least come, coming down a little bit. And just, you know, the, the whole, um, the whole change in the status quo, that was a huge deal mm-hmm. to take, to take a villain and basically, you know, he's a good guy for one issue, but then leave the issue saying, well, all right, I'm not going to be your, your arch foe anymore. You know, I'm going to be someone else. And, and it would have been a lot easier to just make this a, a, a non-continuity story mm-hmm. and Claremont just keep doing what he was doing. But I think you're right. I mean, nothing, you know, they're, they're his wishes, but I think he knew the dangers of the job when he signed on to do a non-creator own property, right? This is, this is what happens. Yeah. But I think for the betterment of, all the fans and readers out there. Um, I, I think he told a near decades worth of awesome stories in large part because this set the stage for a lot of what came after. Not only that, but I just want to point out that this is a very gritty reality based story that, um, the dark Knight is held up for. For being, you know, changing comics, <laughs> it heavily right. influencing everything that followed it in the eighties. You know, the Watchmen, yeah, right, the same right, thing. Right, right, yeah. This predates those fucking stories by three years. Yes, this was Marvel's Dark Knight. This is yeah, Marvel's yeah, Dark Knight. That's, that's Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't think it gets the credit that it deserves for that. Well, and here, here's here's another parallel to that. All right, so so the Dark Knight. You know, what, what did that usher in? Just what was copied was the surface element. It was dark and gritty superheroes. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that all these knockoffs right. took from that. And, you know, you look at Miller's story, it was more than just a Batman who was, who was darker and grittier. There was a whole different aspect of the character. Well, here, a lot of the same thing was done. You know, it's like, okay, uh, everybody hates mutants and they're trying to kill them. You know, that's true, and that remains true in the X-Men books to this day, but the message has gotten lost. The human drama has gotten lost. The idea that these are <laughs> these are still people under these costumes has, has totally gotten lost. And and I think you know, I mean I you know what, I, I like Bendis' stuff, but but I think I think the problem with, with the modern crop of books is that they don't know when to rein it in. And say, hey guys, let's remember these are people under this, under these costumes. And you know, Bendis, you know, you, you look at the other, you know, Powers and, uh, United States of Murder he's doing now. 
there's incredible characterization mm-hmm. in those stories. Just he doesn't bring it to all new X Men. He's just he's just cashing in on the on the on the whole superhero aspect of it. Mm. And and that's why I'm kind of lukewarm to, to his to his current stuff because because it's just that that's gone. It just seems to be a meandering of who fights who and who who's traveling through time and who's not. And it's the events, man. Yeah, I, I hate to say it because I was such a big fan of them, but really, like with age comes wisdom and starting <laughs> to realize that like tiny. That's what upset me so much about Peter David's X Factor getting canceled is the fact that he still does. Oh, quiet. Yeah, and see, there's a guy who knows human drama. Yeah, and and yeah, absolutely, absolutely right. This this graphic novel really was an event when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I mean it it. I mean, you know, no one even, the term wasn't even used in comics. But it was, because it, what do they always say with event stories? Things will never be the same. And you know what? Things weren't. When this was done, things were not the same. Sure. I mean, the Contest of Champions, I think, was probably right around this time. Is that right? That would have been, like, the first true event as we know it now. Oh, Contest of Champions was like, yeah, it was a few months before this. It was it was like it was uh summer of eighty two before this. Yeah, and you know what? That that was more typical of what we call event stories today, you're right. So we I only just, I can't get over how real this thing feels though. Like everything yeah. I don't know, it's just It's definitely a book of its time. It's the the art is dated. You know, Bendis brought him yes. brought Anderson back to as we mentioned before on the show. To illustrate the first, a flashback sequence that, that kind of oh, tells. That, that was awesome. It was, that it was, was super awesome. awesome. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think that the, the themes of the book are timeless. And there's one thing, since we only have a few minutes left, I gotta make sure we, we talk about this. But at the end, Magneto tells them that they've won, but it's meaningless because the yeah. threat still exists to the mutants and that his way is the only way. And Charles, the leader of the X-Men, the man with the dream, was used as a, I mean, I won't spoil the story, but he was used as a weapon against his own people. And you clearly has shaken him up. Brutal scene. So, so he is, I mean, he's now on the fence. He doesn't know what he should do. And, uh, he says, I swore long ago that I would see no more X-Men die. And if Magneto's is the only way to, to, the only means to that end, and so be it. And Scott steps in, and he's like, no, that's unacceptable. We absolutely can't do that. You led us on this path, yep. and we're going to follow it through. And he says, the means are as important as the end. We have to do the right thing. We have to do this right or not at all. Anything less negates every belief we've ever had and every sacrifice we've ever made. And he makes reference to Magneto's ideal of taking control and leading them to this utopia uh-huh. and, and how uh-huh. foolish it was. And it just gave me goosebumps because that's exactly what this guy that delivered this speech did. Yeah. After, yeah, um, yeah. after the, the, uh, the mansion was destroyed mm-hmm. that final time and they ran to San Francisco and built this utopia on asteroid M. <laughs> I mean, oh. how far has Scott fallen? And not only that, but 
the last episode we talked about an issue where uh, the Brood Queen had implanted an egg in Professor X. Scott was willing to sacrifice Professor X to save a Brood invasion, to spare the Earth a Brood invasion. Here again, Professor X is being used as a weapon. Scott wants to off him. You know, it, and then, fittingly, in the end, in, at the end of AVX, he actually does it. <laughs> but but it's Scott who Wait, steps Scott. in and says, we can't Woo! follow Magneto points out the the utopia thing and it's just so chilling the the two the two things you know how utopia is bad he does it um and then this killing professor x thing it, it's just reading that whole sequence gave me chills and you know it was scott that saves the day in the end but you you look forward to now and the guy has completely lost his way and i think what bendis is trying to do is repair that, but he's taking his sweet ass time by doing it. And he's bringing the, the, the past Scott back instead of fixing the broken Scott. Fix the broken Scott and just be done with it and, and get the X-Men Secret back. wars will fix everything. <laughs> I just heard about that. I can't believe it. Secret wars. Which we're gonna get to very soon, Sean. We are. We're gonna, what, can we talk about the, it? The original. The original. Yeah. It's chock full of X-Men goodness, man. I've never read it. X-Men and Magneto. You got it. It's so cool. It's I the coolest it. part of the whole thing. Because Magneto's brought in, I and the know, X-Men do, are brought in. Do you in. want to hear this if you want to read it? Oh, it's we'll save, it's we'll save the end. surprise. It's not the end, but it's, I mean, it's at the beginning, there, but a, it, The X-Men it, have a very interesting part in, in that story. They do. Okay. They do. Uh, but we should definitely talk about it. Oh, no, we I totally will. It's one of those... That was a story that was kind of written for kids. You know, like a kid... Well, a 10-year-old. It would yeah, blow it, a 10-year-old's mind. But you know what? You know what I'll say about Secret Wars? That it's better than most people said it was. In my professional opinion... Oh, I agree. I, I think it's I a agree. much better story than people would have you believe. Now, Secret Wars 2... <laughs> That's a story for another day, kids. You Don't it, buy though. it. You gotta wow. read it. Yeah. <laughs> read it for free if you can. X-Men! Alright, ladies and gentlemen, we've got something very special for you now. We reached out to Mr. Brent Anderson, the artist of the book we've been talking about all evening, and uh, he agreed to come on the show and give us his thoughts on God Loves, Man Kills, and a few other X-Men related things. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the next hour of conversation with Brent Anderson. Joining us today is the man who gave God Loves, Man Kills its unique look. He also has a special place in my heart for having drawn one of my favorite issues of all time, Uncanny X-Men number 160, which brought to the X-Universe Belasco and Sim. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Brent Anderson. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Jerry. Woo-hoo. Oh, it's our pleasure. I assure you, it is our pleasure. Well, uh, let me introduce you to the other guys at the table with me here. Um, sitting to my right is Sean Pigeon, and he's my co-host. Hi, Sean. Hi. It's very nice to talk to you. Sean's in his young 30s. He was a, a Jim Lee X-Men guy when he discovered the X-Men. And then sitting across from me is Jim Johnson of Comic Book Resources. Hi, Brent. Hi, hi, John. Uh, Jim. 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 
And uh, he's much more important than we are and not as important as you. Aw, shucks. <laughs> well, I should, should are we done uh, taking up time? Should we get right to it, or do you want to... Take, take it away, Jer. Yeah, go ahead, Jerry. Sean is just so excited over here. <laughs> I don't even, know. Even though, I'm not, <laughs> even though I'm not Jim Lee? Even though Listen, you're I'm, my Jim Lee. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sean will learn. No. What are you talking about? No, he has learned. We actually started rereading as part of the podcast. This was Sean's idea. We started rereading from Giant Size X-Men number one. So we've now read, to my knowledge, all of your X-Men issues. So he's, and he, you've read them before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I we're think very familiar. God Loves Man Kills is the best X-Men story ever. Oh, thank you. Thank you very so much. So even though I started on Jim Lee, I went back to the good stuff. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No offense, Jim, right? <laughs> no offense. Exactly. Unfortunately, he was not giving out God Loves, Man Kills for Halloween this year. It was Jim Lee's it would have been, X-Men it would number have been one. Expensive. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I was giving out Tiny Titans, so. Oh, <laughs> oh, a fine choice. Oh, wait a minute. I wasn't supposed to mention uh, the business. Yeah. Thing, was I? Oh. Brent, we want to know. What brought a, a young creative mind like you to drawing the X-Men? Well, let's see. Uh, it was very early on in my career. I just recently quit my first uh, regular series, which was Case on the Savage. And um, the reasons I quit was that, not because I wasn't enjoying it, but because the deadlines were just too intense. And I felt that the, the quality of the work I was doing wasn't up to the standard that I wanted to set for myself. So I uh, I went into uh, Louise Simonson's office. She was the editor on the book and uh, told her that, you know, I'd been having trouble meeting the deadlines and the most recent issue that I had rushed through didn't look good to me. And she insisted that it was all there. It was great. Uh, <laughs> and she's, she's, she's probably one of my favorite editors I've ever worked with. But I just couldn't, I just couldn't suffer the deadline pressure anymore. So she understood, and uh, while I was sitting there talking to her, uh, Chris Claremont walked in, <laughs> and he said, uh, "See, I'm trying to think. I think it was Byrne was leaving the book. That's right. And um, you needed somebody to to pick it up. And uh, um, Weezy said, uh, "Well, uh, I, 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 boy, my memory is really hazy on on." If I'd done any work before for Chris and, uh, uh, you know, those fill-ins, I'd have to look at the timeline. You guys might want to look at that, too. But I recall uh, Chris wondering if I would be willing to pick up the X-Men when I get her title. And, I, man, that was quite an honor, but I really couldn't justify doing it because I would be, I was I was quitting a book that had three main characters, Kazar, Shauna, and Zahud, and the Sabertooth Cat, in order to pick up a book that had seven main characters like the X-Men. Right. And and I said, I just reluctantly had to say no. And then he said, well, if you can't do the regular book, um, I, I've been working on this graphic novel, uh, trying to get Neil Adams to do it, and uh, he won't sign the work made for hire contract with Marvel, so he's not going to be doing it. Do you want to do it? And I went, oh, well, tell me more. So we went out for lunch, and, uh, and that's how I got uh, roped into doing the X-Men graphic novel. 
So, so Brent, this is this is Jim. So, so you ended up doing that one issue of Uncanny then. So, so did you did you take that on, expecting that to be an ongoing thing despite your reservation about a monthly deadline, or were they just in between main artists and needed uh, someone to pinch it? They were just in between main artists. Um, actually, 144 was between obviously 143 and 145, and 145 was the first issue of uh, Dave Cockrum. That was his first second run on the book, yep. right? Yep. That was his first issue. So I did that just to give, you know, um, there to be a transition between the two artists, Byrne and Cockrum. And then, like I said, my memory is kind of bad, so I don't, I don't remember if I, I see, I did the X-Men graphic novel in 82. Mm-hmm. In late eighty one and into eighty two. So it was published I think in eighty eighty two, wasn't it? It was late eighty two, yeah. Yeah. And uh so as far as the timeline goes there, I'm not sure. Um I suspect that I did one forty four before I did the graphic novel and I did one sixty after. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds right. That that's about my recollection, just just picking those up. Yeah. Yeah, and so and actually, 160. I think 159. Sienkiewicz did right. The one with Dracula. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And since Bill and I were in a studio together, it was kind of it was kind of it was kind of a, a two for one deal because Weezy called us and and uh, lined us up to do these two fill-in issues. I guess because that was the transition to Paul Smith, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. That period of time was like 158 um, was Cockrum's last issue on that second run, and then and then Paul Smith was going to take it up. I think he uh, Cockrum was on until uh, 164, and then Paul Smith joined with 165. So yeah, you were you were right at the tail end. Yeah, so probably giving uh, Cockrum some a breather, having those two issues be filling. Sure, it's got to be a lot of pressure to to ta- to have a book like that monthly. You know, with the expectation of quality and, and the high sales. Oh yeah. Well, and when you have a high bar like uh, John Byrne working on a book, you kind of go, "Oh man, I got to bring my a my a efforts to this." And uh, you did. Not that following Neil Adams was any kind of <laughs> not a challenge <laughs> for the graphic novel. But. So, Brent, do you remember how long it took you to illustrate the graphic novel from start to finish? Oh, I don't know, but it was a long time. Yeah. Um, and how much lead I, time did they give you? Was there a time crunch on it? Um, I think I picked the book up in the late spring, early summer, like the end of June that year, mm-hmm. uh, the year that I started it. And that was when uh, Jim Shooter was really pushing the graphic novel format. And um, they scheduled my book to be either number five or number six. I think they originally scheduled it to be number six. Okay. And um, but they also had um, uh, signed a contract with uh, Walt Simonson to do Star Slammers. Yeah, sure. And I think Star Slammers came out as number five, didn't it? Or was that mine? That was six. Your, I think it came out right after one. you. Yeah. yeah. So Star Slammers was number six. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I recall that um, I went up, you know, when uh, Simonson had a studio with uh, Frank Miller and um, uh, Howard Chaykin. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Upstart Studios. 
in Manhattan. <laughs> Um, I went to a studio party. They used to have studio parties there, and I went while I was working on the X-Men graphic novel. And uh, Walt was there, and he was showing off, you know, Star Slammer pages. And uh, I remember, you know, just ooing and aahing over those pages, and I was showing my pages around, and he's, he's had some nice compliments for the pages I was working on. Great. And uh, then um, he said, did you know we're, did you know we're racing? I said, no. <laughs> what do you mean we're racing? He goes, oh, well, uh, your book is number five, and mine is, or my book is number five, and I think yours is scheduled to be number six. But depending on which one comes in first, Shooter's going to schedule whichever one comes in first. <laughs> I went, oh, so I'm, I'm racing Walt Simonson. <laughs> and he said, well, yeah. He says, uh, I, he says uh, you know, you're, you're – you're probably a better artist than I am, but I'm a lot faster than you, so we'll see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, how so, old were you at this point? Um, you were young twenties. Uh, let's see, nineteen. Well, no, I was twenty-one in seventy-six. So, okay, this, this would have been twenty-five, about twenty-seven. Yeah. 26, okay. 27. Yeah. It's. Uh, it's still incredible to because so <laughs> Sinkevich is a little younger than you, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because he was like twenty three when he was when he did one fifty nine, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me that people of that age were putting out work at this quality because you you don't see that now from guys until they hit thirty five or forty years yeah. old. You could what's different? <laughs> is it just that you guys were gifted with this? Enormous ability, or, or is is the uh... boy? That's a that's a question I really can't answer. I don't know. Kids today are lazy. I'm the youngin in the group. I can tell you, <laughs> my generation is lazy. That's the problem. <laughs> well, I I I do know for a fact that I drew all the time, and so did Sinkevich. So maybe that's part of it. That we we had nothing else to do with our lives but just sit around and learn how to draw. Bless you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> You're very welcome. So uh, you've already hinted that that you knew coming onto the project that um, Neil Adams had been assigned to the book initially and, and wouldn't sign the contract. And for those who are wondering about the um, oh shoot, I, I blanked on the the right the work made, work made for hire work made yeah. for hire contract. Right, Neil Adams just did a discussion about that on Batman on Batman recently and uh you can get lots of details about it there but uh sure. um basically for for a very experienced artist like neil adams it, it was viewed as kind of a raw deal but maybe for a younger guy like you it was too good an opportunity to pass up would you say or, or uh, were there concerns for you signing well, a contract like that when when i went to lunch with chris and, and to talk about what this graphic novel was about um i thought it was a terrific idea um, for the X-Men to be like a stand-in for all of the, um, the racial intolerance and the uh, biases in our society, mm -hmm. and to use that as a symbol for how to tell a really good story um, addressing those issues. And uh, as we went along and talked about it, uh, Chris was sort of amending and um, changing his storyline somewhat because he would work very differently with Neil. 
mm-hmm. on the same subject matter than he would uh, me or say he was doing this with Doc Cockrum or John Buscema, for that matter. Um, he would tailor his writing to the strengths of the artist that he was working with and the, and the, and the um, um, sensibilities of the artist. So as we went along, it just it just sort of evolved as we were as we were going along. And I remember immediately going home and start and doing three I think it was three sample pages. Um, I wanted to do, draw the book entirely twice up, like the old comics used to be done because the graphic novel format was slightly larger than the comic book format. Right. And so I did three uh, twice-up pages, um, which, and for those of you that don't understand that, it, it, the original art is twice as big. It's 200% right. uh, of the printed page as opposed to uh, 150% of it which is the 10 by 15 format. But so anyway, I, I drew these uh, three pages, and it's the sequence in the book where um, Kitty is attacked by the thugs um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the alleyway in the city, and the purifiers come and try to kill her, uh, and the purifier and the other ones, the guys in armor, show up. And she, you know, faces uh, through the wall and, you know, and runs to the uh, subway train. I don't know if you remember that three that three panel. I sure do. Yep. Those three pages. Well, those are the three the first three pages I drew. And um, when I showed those to Chris, that once again said, "Okay, all right, uh, I think I know the direction this book's going to go in now." <laughs> and that was a that was a I don't I can't remember what pages those were, but those were um, at least a dozen pages into the story at that point. So he went back and rewrote the or the, the original um, the opening to the story with the kids being hung on the uh, on the swing set. Um, originally, it was what you saw in the Neil Adams uh, uh, six pages where the purifiers were attacking Magneto, and uh, Chris said, "Nope, nope, we're gonna we're gonna change this. We're gonna." And then when he sent me the script for that scene, I was like. We could do this in a Marvel comic. <laughs> we could crucify some kids and <laughs> and have the bad guy, the villain of the piece, discover them and swear vengeance, you know, <laughs> on whoever did this to them. Uh, that was that was that was an eye opener. So so that must have been like quite a coup for you. You're you're the young guy who actually helped steer the direction of this story that's become like iconic. I mean that that must have been pretty awesome, right? I didn't feel awesome at the time. It just felt <laughs> like I, I, I got some really fun work to do. And uh, yeah, you know, one one thing we we were talking earlier, and that was, um, you know, being being around back then. I I remember that, you know, the the graphic novel in comics was a pretty new thing at the time. It, it certainly was. Um, you know, at Marvel, they only had uh, four of these under their belt at the at this point, and what what I seem to recall from from talking to my local retailer was, you know, uh, Starlin's first one, the death of Captain Marvel, did pretty well, but then the ones that followed uh, did not do as well as expected. So so Marvel was looking for a big, you know, a big hit with the next one, be it um, you know God Loves Man Kills or or uh, Simonson's, like like you said, whichever came out of the gate first. But but do you recall? Um, I remember that 
that when this was solicited and everyone was saying this, this is going to be a big thing and they found out that it was going to be drawn by a, you know, by a relatively unknown artist and that, and that it was, it was something that people felt was just going to be a overgrown annual, if you will. Did, did you have any sense that there was any kind of negative buzz going on when you were creating this or, or were you able to just kind of work in a vacuum and, and, and put any of that potential discussion aside? Well, I wasn't really privy to it at the time. The only thing that I was aware of, and uh, Shooter made me aware of this, not directly, but, you know, I could feel it, was that he had stuck his neck way out <laughs> to even promote this, this whole graphic novel idea. And he was following um, Eclipse, uh, who yep. had done, done their graphic novels, yep. and liked the format. He liked the respect that it paid to the comics format, and he really wanted to push it. And he had some support, I would guess, because there were some published. Yeah. But uh, it really was sort of writing on the line that these two books, both both Walt Simonson's and mine, get out on time, so that you know we could at least have six, at least six of them <laughs> out there. Yeah. So um, I think Jim Shooter had installed had, had initiated some kind of a bonus system that if you got a book in on time, you get a bonus, and I think that that played into part of. Uh, the race that uh, Simonson and I were feeling like we were having because it wasn't that one was going to get the bonus, the other one wasn't, but it sort of pushed us both to get it in on time. And uh, I think ultimately they did come in on time. Um, but as far as the splash that the X-Men graphic novel was going to make, who knew? Who knew? I didn't I didn't know. Well, you know, because because like, like you alluded to, the whole uh... – the whole scene at the beginning that was rewritten involving the, you know, the, the, the children, you know, being murdered and, and, you know, left to discover on, on a playground. I mean, I mean, in all honesty, that, that was something that was pretty unheard of, at least in a, in a mainstream comic in the day. And, and, and just my feeling always was that that is not something that, that a major publisher ever could have gotten away with in a regular 32 page or even, even double size annual. I mean, this was something that, that was not only deserving, but but had to be in a more adult format because even by today's standards, right? I mean, that's a very disturbing scene, you know, e- even more so now than than it might have been back then. So so I think you know I I, I think that um, by putting it in this format was was probably the smart move, and I think it I think it silenced a lot of the critics who did think that this was just going to be a, an overpriced annual. I, I think it showed them that no, this was serious. You know, this was serious art. This was serious literature talking, like you said, about about real life topics using, you know, a fictional background as as the subject. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you know Star Trek used to do in the original series a long time yeah. ago. Is that, yeah. that they could deal with social issues that television would not touch um, unless it was under the guise of science fiction fantasy, hmm. like you know, um, and uh, so the. The, the graphic novel itself was well received. People, you know, really wanted to see the next pages that were coming in because I used to truck them into the city every day, or not every day, but once a week. I would take the pages in and, and turn them in, and uh, there was a good response to it uh, in the offices. But 
whether that was going to translate into sales or into an acceptance on the part of not only the fans, but of the industry in general. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, that was a that was a big question, big question mark. But uh, it sold pretty pretty well. So so the uh, you know the the crucifixion scene on the top of the World Trade Center was that Chris's idea or was that something that you uh, put in there yourself? That was Chris's idea. Yeah, because I mean even yeah. that you know that's something that you know for obvious reasons kind of takes on a new perspective nowadays also. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, um, uh, I remember Chris, when he, when he, uh, when I got the script for that, uh, that part of it, um, I'm trying to remember, I, I don't know whether I got a, a complete script or he was taking his original script and rewriting it as we were producing it. Uh, you might, you might check with Chris on that, I'm not sure. But, uh, I'm, uh, I'm pretty certain that when I got those pages of script and I read that, I just, I went, oh, my God, <laughs> computer and Marvel going to let us do this the way you've written it? I mean, we're talking about, you know, demonic X-Men disemboweling him on a cross on the Trade Center Tower at the highest point in Manhattan. I'm going, geez, you know, and uh, not to mention the backlash from the televangelists, you know, the... Uh, the <laughs> Sure. Oh really? Who they, didn't, the... they didn't like this story? <laughs> oh no, I don't, I don't think so. And they were I at the height a, of their power at the time, right? Yeah, and I have a I have a tape somewhere where um, uh, the Seven Hundred Club, Pat, Pat Robertson's Seven Hundred Club, did a a piece on you know the the demonics of comics, and, <laughs> and they 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 held up the X Men graphic novel as you know the centerpiece. Oh, saying, high praise indeed. Hi, oh, yeah, it, cer- it certainly was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you you rock. So so I mean, so what what was it like? What was it like to be Brent Anderson on the eve of this book's release? Were you a nervous wreck? I mean, were you were you were you excited? Were you nervous? How how were you feeling? Well, I was kind of a nervous wreck because of the pressure that I felt in getting this book getting the book in on time. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I have a long career of having difficulty meeting deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, not missing them by a lot, but generally missing them, you know, because of the, because I wanted the quality of the work to be better. And uh, most artists want that, but, you know, there are these deadlines that need to be met if you're going to do it regularly. No, I hear you. So I was a little, I was a little, but when I turned in the last pages, um, um, everybody liked it and they said, okay, we're going for it. And, and and I was I was a little nervous, but as far as I was concerned, it was just uh, the most recent job that I turned in successfully, and I got my my check. <laughs> and after that, when when the book finally was published and it came out, um, I generally wait to read the whole book when it is published. That's true with Astro City, and that's true with, with every book that I've ever done. And I tend not to read it right away because I'm still too close to it. So it wasn't until people started responding to it and calling me for interviews and doing all this stuff, you know, that I went, oh, maybe I should read this thing. <laughs> so no, yeah, We tried calling her. you, but the line was busy. So we're just now getting through. Yeah. Well, so 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 talk about that, Brent. So when you read it as as a fan, or you know as close to as being a fan as you could, what was 
how did it feel to you? How, how did it feel to you reading the finished product? I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you were proud of it, but how did it feel to see this in, in, in finished form and something that was being so acclaimed? Well, it felt like, well, actually, um, it felt like this is what I want to do for the rest of my career. I want to do material like this. This is what I want to do. I want to do material that captures the emotional content of the characters and the situation and that the stories have some more meaning than just, you know, a bunch of characters fighting each other or or, um, or telling the same, you know, space alien invasion story again <laughs> with a new cast of, of sure. heroes. Sure. Uh, um, but uh, that's the kind of work that I, you know, I segued from that into doing Somerset Holmes, which oh, yeah. Yeah. was another one of those projects that uh, really in, in, engaged me. Just like just like working on Kazar. Kazar was not not well received. Bruce Jones and my Kazar was not well received at the offices of Marvel. At yeah, that time. yeah. A lot of editors that went, you know, you're you're destroying a character, and our view was there was no character to destroy that. Creating <laughs> <laughs> a character here, <laughs> um, but uh, but the the. The feeling was that I just wanted to do this kind of work when I, when I finished this and got to and finally read it. Um, another little side here is that um, uh, Steve Olaf was the colorist on that book. Yeah. And it was the first time that the quote-unquote Marvel method had been utilized in a painterly fashion. Um, we were working on gray lines um, with, the, with the serpent you know, line art overlay. Really? Yeah. And we were working in uh, watercolor markers and uh, Q-tips, and the medium was saliva. <laughs> 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 we used to, 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 to color it. And then um, Steve started introducing cell vinyls uh, because you could get some resist techniques. There's a, there's a particular scene where Storm is using her wind powers, and there's all these swirly blue and white, you know, kind of cloud-like swirly things or something. Well, Steve got that with cell vinyls. And uh, so there was a lot of experimentation uh, in scratching out the surprints and, and, and to try to make the book as representational uh, as possible to reflect the grown-up nature, the, the more sophisticated adult nature of yep. the, uh, the story and the characters. And that's, that's what slowed me down was, you know, you know, you have the sequence where uh, Stryker, you know, kills his his unborn child, you know, after the accident. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Discovers it's a, well. I I decided I wanted to paint those pages, so I just I painted them in monochrome, and it was things like that that sort of slowed me down on the on the uh, on the deadline. It was worth it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it paid off for sure. So yeah, so I, Brent, so the so talking about. So the, the, you know, a lot of the, you know, most of the pages, you know, they're, they're visually dark. And, 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 you know, what I mean by that is just heavy inks or, or dark colors. Was that, was that you or was that Steve kind of more responsible for that? Um, probably more me because the, the feeling and texture of a scene in a comic starts with the black and white art. Okay. And it's really up to the colors to follow that. Um, sensibility, um, and Steve did a great job. 
Absolutely. And uh, the story's dark. The uh, you know we try to lighten it up in scenes like you know the uh, almost humorous you know opening scene where they're in the danger room and and uh, um, and Wolverine you know cuts the head off the <laughs> <laughs> off of the, the people he's supposed to be the yeah. you know, mannequins he's supposed to be saving and uh, <clears throat> but um, there were there, there were moments in it where there was there was humor. Uh, I, I I trust that Steve, you know, colored it bright enough for the humorous part of it. Well, you he did, and and you got to draw one of the most awesome Wolverine scenes of the time, where he puts his fist <laughs> under the the chin of one of the the I forget who the character was, one of the purifiers, I think. And I mean, you remember it? He pops a claw on each side, and. And, you know, and then, and then he says, want to go for three, which is, you know, the one that'll put a claw through his brain. And, and it's the middle one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I can't, I can't give I can't, him the middle claw. I'm not, I'm not going to take 100% respond, uh, 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 credit for that scene. Although, and Chris might differ with me, we had a working style, which, you know, it was really blended together. Um, I don't think to this day we know specifically what each of us created and then brought into the into the mix but um i think i i came up with that well that's yeah. almost how it should be right i mean i yeah. mean you, you might as well maximize the the medium and, and and make it seamless like that because yeah you know and that that's why i asked some of these questions if it was like your idea or chris's because you genuinely cannot tell you know, by reading this, even with, you know, all the X-Men work Chris had yeah. done subsequent to this, it, it, it still can't be readily discerned. So, um, yeah, but, and, and, and having said this, um, if you get a different story from Chris, <laughs> you, I, I expect you might. Um, and I'm not really interested in taking credit for things like that, you know. Well, now that you, I will take, take co-credit. I'm taking that as a challenge, Brent. You came out first. I'm going to seek him out, and, and we'll get his side of it. Yeah, we will ask him, but we're going to believe you because you got here first. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I remember there was a there was a what inspired that scene for me was the scene with John Byrne where um, Wolverine's claws could come out at any distance that he wanted, up to the maximum distance, the length of the claws. Hmm. And as I recall, there was a scene where he was interrogating uh, some baddie, some bad henchman guy. And he popped his claws out towards the guy's eyes, and he stopped him just short of his eyeball. Do you recall that scene? I am not. One of the Hellfire? Or am I I making that up? No, it might be one of the Hellfire Club guys in the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sean nailed it. Yeah, and I thought, what might be more horrific <laughs> than that? I mean, that's pretty horrific, you know, a blade coming right towards your eyeball. I mean, you're going to talk. <laughs> I, I, I'm squirming thinking about it, so yeah. Yeah, and so so I thought, well, what if, you know, you've got three claws. One will nip off one ear, the other one will nip off the <laughs> other ear, well, and the third one will... Be in your brain pan if you don't tell me what I want. Well, and you, and you know that that's a good point because there there was there was restraint there, which I think is something you know you don't see a lot of nowadays. I mean, I mean, I, th- I think there's barely a week that goes by where Wolverine's not slicing somebody's fingers off or 
or arm off or whatever. I, I mean, that that's fine. But I, I guess I guess what made that scene work for me is that, you know, kind of deep down, we would have said, hey, this is the kind of story where if Wolverine's ever going to put a claw through someone's brain, it's going to be right here. And you guys opted not to do it. And what I thought Chris did that was so awesome was it was Magneto. Magneto, the one who's telling him, hey, maybe there's a better way to do this. Which, of course, you know, there was on the next page. Magneto practically rips the same guy apart, which which was awesome. But <laughs> you'd expect that from Magneto, you know. But but he was actually the one to have Wolverine stand down, which 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 to me, I I, I think was something that 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 worked perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I, in retrospect, you're right. <laughs> in retrospect, I mean, I hadn't thought about it, but you're right. I'm worried we'll move on from this, and before we do, I just want to say that. There's one moment in comics history that I can remember exactly where I was when I saw it for the first time. And this is it. I was standing in my best friend's kitchen and he showed me this book and he showed me that scene and it like changed my life. So, I mean, it stuck with me for 30 years. I for the better. I was a pretty decent scene. Well, I am a mass murderer, but, you know... Wrong. Yes, for the better. <laughs> no, but you, but you, but you murder with style, right? You I sure do. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's a high compliment. Thank you very much. And who is it that just said? That? Oh, it's Jerry. Sorry. That's Jerry. Thank you, Jerry. Yeah. Um, I actually did. I don't know if I'm going to form this in the best way. This is Sean, <laughs> by the way, in the best way possible in the question. But I did want to um ask you about the like climate and the time when this book was drawn and written and how it was um i grew up in a in a really religious household and my father was a police officer who started um in the detroit police department during the race riots Mm -hmm. and so he was kind of a harder man when i was a kid and i think that's one of the things that drew me to the Mm x-men and i like i said not really a question but I did want to thank you because um, this book made me, I think it was the first time that I was able to question um, some of my beliefs and some of the things that I had brought up when to look at it from a different perspective. And I really appreciated the choice at the end of the story, like how you talked um, earlier about the fact that it wasn't superheroes punching. Like this is something that is still... Um, just as important for people to read nowadays. And I appreciate in the end that it wasn't a, um, it wasn't Cyclops stopping Stryker. It wasn't Wolverine coming up and stabbing him, but it was a man on the street. It was a police officer. And, um, I just wanted to say that I appreciate the, the way it was done. I feel like, and this was the first time that comics to me felt real. Like your art was the first time that that comics didn't feel like a a better cartoon, but actually felt yeah. like I was reading the real world. Hmm. So, well, thank you, thank you, Sean. Sh- Sean, wants your, Sean wants your autograph. Not a question, <laughs> but so um, so to kind of make that a question, was there any part of you that was nervous about the heavy subject matter? I mean, at that age and that time, or was it something that you felt needed to get out there that people shouldn't just take these words? value from the people they were coming from but maybe question where they were coming from yeah that's that's a question more suitable for Chris True. because um, <laughs> his, his, his original idea was that 
he was seeing the ascendancy of political power from the religious pulpit through the televangelists. And he was uh, frightened and appalled at how people like Pat Robertson and Earl Roberts could take the medium of television and increase their own power through the fears of other people. Um, in other words, in the case of the X-Men, uh, Stryker exploited the fears of uh, mutants. And not only exploited the natural fears that homo sapiens had for homo superior, but also um, stirred it up. You know, in yeah. other words, yeah. Cre yeah. created more fear in order to consolidate their power. And Chris saw this happening in the real world. And as far as I, I, I he needed to address it. And what better place to address it than the X-Men? <laughs> it's a great, yeah, great place to do it in a, in a fictional world, but with some very real truths inside of it. Yeah, and you know, you know, I guess, I guess, thinking about that now, the, the fact that that religion could be portrayed as something bad, you know, was was kind of a new idea. I maybe maybe that was the first time it was done. But I, Sean's question, you know, kind of reminded me that as I was reading this, you know, that that the these televangelists and these these extreme, you know, religious, if you can even call it that group, you know, are are really you know, nothing more than a, than a hate group. And there was really nothing to try to whitewash that. I mean, this, this, this wasn't disguised as something other than religion. This was flat out a group, you know, purporting to be religious and, and, and Chris embraced that, you know, without, without shying away from it at all, which I think was another thing that I think a mainstream comic probably wouldn't have wanted to touch. No. And, and fortunately the X-Men, I mean, the, the graphic novel series, under Shooter's direction, was not your regular comic book. Yeah, exactly, and, uh, exactly. And if and if Shooter hadn't been championing this series and hadn't been editor in chief at the time, I don't know that Chris would have been able to even do this story at all. I think you're right. No, I think you're under, right. Under under Marvel's auspices, anyway, he would have had to go to Eclipse and changed all the characters. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and in that regard, this story was actually ahead of its time. I, I don't think Marvel would have touched a story like this for another fifteen years, probably. You know, I, with I, with the current. I don't think they touched. I don't think they touched on it much since. No. Um, Fair I point. Just did a, yeah. uh, I yeah. just did like like four pages for uh, all new X Men number twenty one. Yes, you did. <laughs> um, which uh, you know that was a request by uh, Bendis to um, you know to he wanted to revisit that period of time for the X Men story he was telling in in, in all new X Men, and but it didn't touch on anything that had anything really to do with the story. In the original X-Men graphic novel, yep. um, it just reminded people that it was a period of time where the X-Men looked like this. Yeah, and I was kind of disappointed that it wasn't it wasn't you know a continuation really. It was uh, just a reference. Well, you know, it's it's funny you bring that up because this, you know, this is Jim again, and I got to thank these guys for letting me hijack their show. <laughs> I, I, you know, I I don't know the, the the questions just come flowing, so I so I don't shut up. 
but but I was I was going to to, to move to that uh, Brent because um, coincidentally I assure you I actually reviewed that issue favorably on comic book resources back when it came out I think this was back in what January probably the all new X Men that you're talking about yeah I think I, I think I got a posting on on Facebook about it yeah and uh, I remember um, you know I don't. I don't really follow, you know, the advanced solicitations. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just too busy keeping track and, and of covering what's coming out. So when I opened this up and I, I saw the very first story page looked like it was straight out of this graphic novel. I mean, I did a double take. I mean, I could tell right away that it wasn't, but I'm like, Oh my God, Brent drew this issue, you know, and I, I read the first, <laughs> you know, four pages and, you know, it's like, Oh my God, it, it was like a mind trip back to the, to the past and then and then you know i get to to page five and you know nothing against i think it was brandon peterson who drew the rest nothing against his stuff i love his stuff but when i realized that that sequence you're talking about was just a flashback to tie it into present day just the wind went out of my sails you know (laughs) i i thought this is going to be a nice little uh, revisitation of that but uh but um it was it was great to see that um, you did a, I don't know, it sounds funny to say a very faithful interpretation of your own work, but, but I mean, it, <laughs> it, it looked like it stepped right out of the, the graphic novel. And, and what I was going to ask was, you know, did you, as an artist, did you have to, did you have to like backtrack and try to draw on a little different style than, you know, what you do now? Or did this come pretty natural, uh, you know, the way you would render a story nowadays? Um, it's pretty much the same way today, mm-hmm. the way I would render a story. Um, I was honored to be asked by Bendis to to uh, do this, these four pages, because it was it was a hoot. It was fun. Um, and then that being the job, I wanted to do the job correctly. So I did actually go back and look at the original artwork from the excellent graphic novel and try to pick moments or feelings or scenes and replicate yeah. the feeling in the moment. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think I'm a better artist now than I was then because I'm looking at the old stuff and going, eh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you, uh, were, you were racing Simonson at the time. Keep in mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I, I drew this one on the computer. Uh, I've been drawing on the oh, computer for okay. about six years now. Gotcha. So it was interesting to apply the tools that I can use on the computer that I didn't have available to me back in, in, when I was producing the original graphic novel and to try to replicate the feeling, um, but in a, in a, in a grander way. Um, that opening page, you know, where he's on the pulpit and you see the television camera on the second page, you know, looking yeah. down and you see all the crowd and yeah. all that kind of stuff. That's the scene I wanted to do when, uh, in the original, where Magneto opens the ceiling of the uh, Madison Square Garden oh, yeah. and then drops the ceiling back down into place. He's so powerful, he can lift this whole thing, make his dramatic entrance, and lower it back down without mussing anybody's hair. I mean, that, <laughs> that, was, that was a moment, but I couldn't quite capture that, the subtlety of that. Uh, and I tried to recapture it with this scene, you know, in the in, in uh, All No X Number Twenty One, uh, with him on the pulpit and yeah. 
you know, he's got his audience. He's got that audience. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. I, I think that I think this scene in all new X-Men might have been underappreciated by the younger crowd who, you know, maybe never read the original story or maybe read it, you know, years after it came out, but, but take it from, an old guy who who was around back when this came out. I, I mean, I'm not one to wallow in nostalgia, but but I mean, this was this was a flipping awesome sequence, and it fed into the story perfect. I don't, well, I don't think that it would have over like I don't think it would have passed over the younger audience because being one of the slightly younger audience, I don't have much of a grasp on Pat Roberts or anything like that. But however, I put the comparison more to like Fred Phelps. Yeah. Like that's where my head went during this time, during the all new X-Men time was like pure hate speech and that type of mm-hmm. guy. So that, like that's the scary thing for me is, is dropping those four pages into a book that came out this year yeah. when this is, you know, over 30 years old now. And the fact that it's still ridiculously, unfortunately relevant <laughs> yeah. is terrifying. Yeah. yeah, really. Good point. Good point. Even I, Good job on the beekeeper suit, too, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? You I know once what? read in an interview that Simonson can't draw those, so take that. Ooh. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, think there's a, I think there's an unwritten mandate that AIM has to appear in every single issue of a Marvel comic nowadays. So it's good to see that you played along nicely with that, with that mandate. Well, that was actually requested by the writer, so. Yeah, yeah. I was just doing my job. No, looks, looks good, man. It was, it was just, it was a good, you know, Sean's point is, is, is valid that I, I think it, it, it can still leave a mark on the younger crowd, but, but as an oldster, I mean, this was awesome. And any time, uh, I, I welcome any time a writer wants to, uh, have you make an appearance in in one of the books because this was awesome. (laughs) Absolutely. And Bendis deserves a little bit of credit because you were heralded in every appearance he made on every podcast, every interview. Uh, he ah. was, he was shouting about these four pages. So I knew they were coming. And, yeah. uh, and even though I knew they were coming, they, they still were really impressive. When I opened that book up, it just took me right back. He's a good hype man. He is a good hype man. <laughs> yeah. Gotta, gotta get him on here hyping us. <laughs> we'll let you do that, Brent. You can be our uh, our angelic horn. Oh, okay. Just like William Stryker. Oh, yeah. You can be our William Stryker, <laughs> spreading our <laughs> message of hatred. <laughs> I hope I, I I hope I come across a little saner though. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, welcome to Great Expectations. Hope you survive the experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, off base from the comic, was there any part like how um how do you feel about them adapting somewhat well it's not even really an adaptation of the story unfortunately it's a rough adaptation there I mean, are, they use the there characters. are names yeah was it exciting when you saw that they were using william striker in the x-men films although i will it, admit i still i said this to these guys earlier i think that they should have just storyboarded the film from your actual <laughs> work and just yep. done a shot yep. for shot for the book well i'll tell you there's a funny little anecdote around that the year that the announcement was going around Comic-Con in San Diego um, that X-Men 2 was going to be based on, or partially based, uh, was it Brian Singer? Who yes. Did that? yes. Uh, that it was going to be partially based on the X-Men graphic novel that Chris and I had done. Um, I was sitting behind my table in Artist Alley, and, and, and Claremont comes up, and he goes, 
hey, did you hear the news? And I go, no, what's, what, what's the news? And then he told me. And, uh, and I said, I said, oh, he goes, uh, I, I said, wow, that's, that's kind of flattering. He goes, yeah, but I want to know how much. So I'm looking for, I'm looking for somebody that has a copy of the, of, of the, of the, of the screenplay. <laughs> I want to find out what's going to be in there and what isn't, you know. And he was, he was like trying to, I think he was trying to find a copy of the Exxon Graphic novel, to tell you the truth, so that, you know. Uh, when he finally tracked down the, uh, the, the screenplay, he could, re, you know, reacquaint himself with the story. Sure. But that, was, that was funny. Comic-Con's not about comics. I'm sure he never found a copy. <laughs> At that time, let's see, what year was that? That was 2001, I think they made that announcement. So, yeah, it might have might have been back then, actually. Yeah, there might have been some. I, I knew I'd be signing some. I, I, I signed at least one X-Men graphic novel just about any con appearance I've been in the <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> That's awesome. Did yeah. they roll out the red carpet for you guys at the uh, premiere? Nope. <sighs> what? Nerds. Well, Chris Chris actually was in the third one, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he was mowing his grass, I think. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to ask this, uh, because w- when I think about this, time period and I hear about people talk about the eighties now and the eighties the comic scene. Everybody always says the eighties comics were all about because of the Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and the gritty real feel that they brought to comics. Grim and gritty. So when and if you hear that, what do you say to those jerks who forget about God loves man kills? Well, I don't assume that they forgot about it <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> well, they must have because clearly well, you guys set the bar. Yeah, although, you know, you look at Dark Knight in the way that that Miller a, approached the Batman archetype and really, you know, broke new ground there. Um, and you look at the, what uh, um, Moore did with the Watchmen, um, breaking further ground. Um, in those particular areas. But the grim and gritty, I think, is just too general a category. And I've come to see that the excellent graphic novel really is a standalone deal. It really doesn't have much relation to anything else going on at the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's um, and uh, I can't really explain that. Um, you know, Maybe it's just that it's, it's it's its own place, it's its own thing in the comic in comics history or whatnot, and is not really comparable either 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 favorably or unfavorably to anything else that was going on at the time. Sure. Well, I don't want to take anything away from either story because they're both wonderful, but I, okay. I just feel like um, this predated those by two years, three years for uh, the Watchmen, and I I. I don't know. I just think that it's overlooked in the, in that conversation because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not that there's a formula to the story, but I think that they borrow from, from your story a little bit some of the ideas that they use. Well, I, I, I have heard, I, I did hear years ago after it came out, but I did hear directly from Frank and directly from Alan Moore that they liked the Exnographic novel a great deal. So. That's awesome. No more, uh, no more 
some more thanks than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know what I think, what I think was different was with, with Frank Miller's The Dark Knight, right? Is there was something on the surface there that was very easy for people to copy. And God knows a lot of people did, right? I mean, there's, you saw, you saw this whole phase of grim and gritty knockoffs that, you know, largely were all pretty bad. You know, those imitators missed, you know, the whole point of Frank Miller's graphic novel. It wasn't just about, you know, Batman being a darker character. There was, there was, there was more depth to it than that. And I think God Loves Man Kills was more of a, thinking person story right there there wasn't anything on the surface to to really copy and and make a pale imitation from i think what god loves man kills did was just shape the future of the ongoing comic um you know probably to this very day from the standpoint of the bigotry and and racism if you will against against the mutant race so so i i think god loves man kills just inspired what came later in a different way than, than the Dark Knight did because, because I think, I think both are landmark works, but I think Dark Knight just made, was easier to think you could imitate. Whereas, whereas this, I don't think anyone would really know how to imitate it. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of gratified. It, it feels good to know that neither Alan nor Frank felt compelled to want to copy the X-Men graphic novel. They went off right. and did their own thing. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think this general lumping together of grim and gritty um, really, it, it really sort of devalues the real essence of those those two projects yeah. and maybe the graphic novel also. Mm-hmm. Um, because there, there's more going on there than just changing an art style or, or changing an approach. It was actually codifying the importance of each of those different yep. uh, uh, venues, yep. you know, and um, still Agreed. playing in other people's sandboxes, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, Al- Alan Moore created his own characters, and uh, yeah. Frank was playing in somebody else's sandbox and completely changing the sand. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I like it. reinventing the sand. That can be a new, uh, new catch term. All right. So what's next, Jerry? Um, let me think here. The conversation has been moving so smoothly. We've got I mean, a lull. Our, we have a lull. What do we our, do? I mean, Brent, are you good on time? I mean, are we taking up your evening? I mean, you cool? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. I've, I've sort of allotted an hour, and we didn't get started until 3 o'clock. So. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's about the time to start thinking about a uh, final question. Um, do, do you have any? Well, oh, I did. I have one question uh, about you. when we were discussing the um, the crucifixion scene earlier and the demonic imagery from that. Uh, you mentioned that that you worked on this prior to working on Uncanny 160, and I, I just wondered if uh, the script for Uncanny 160 and the trip to Limbo, if any of that had been worked on prior to working on this, and if maybe that might have triggered something in either Chris or you for leading you to that story. Um, or is that just way too long ago? It, it probably did for Chris. It's seeing the success of his approach to the X-Men graphic novel 
you know, commercially anyway, and creatively. Um, I think his stories started heading in that direction, particularly when I did that fill-in. Mm-hmm. Because I remember he wanted he wanted to do a tribute to um, uh, Cerebus and right. by creating the character of Sim. Yeah. And I guess there was some kind of a there was some kind of a running good natured joke or a tiff between them because of the uh the um uh Wolverine character. <laughs> right. Is that the character that Sim had where yep. it was a parody of Wolverine? Yep. Mm-hmm. And you know, Chris was like, Ha ha, Dave. So he was going to do his version back by doing a version of Sim who was a um, a minion of Belasco, of, of, of a demon character. So um, that was part. That was that part of it. But there were parts in there where Kurt, uh, Kurt, uh, Chris insisted that the horrific scenes be truly horrific. Um, that Belasco is such an evil guy, as evil as Stryker, right? Mm-hmm. So he concocted this way of pulling Kitty's skeleton out of her body and keeping her locked up in a crystal. Yes. And then there was that scene where the demonic uh, um, um, nightcrawler, I guess, uh, guts, see, what was it? gutted Kitty or something. Um, it's been a while since I read it, but there was there was some horrific scene involving disembowelment again. <laughs> oh, Kitty! When uh, no, that's that's in the miniseries when uh, Cat guts Nightcrawler. Um, the Colossus that's in the wall completely. Yeah, Colossus has his guts smashed in. That's right. That's right. Yeah. When, uh, when the, the evil Wolverine comes up and, and does yeah. that, so so Chris was you know he says this has to be horrific. It needs to be horrific, 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 and uh, that could have been, you know, a follow-up to the, the, the horribleness of the crucifixion that was in, um, sure, uh, in uh, uh, Xavier's mind in the graphic novel. Well, the similarity of the imagery is unmistakable, and uh, the mark that it left on my ten-year-old mind <laughs> is indelible. <laughs> I promise you, uh, that 160 issue. Uh, Everything you did in there was magic for me. (laughs) It really stuck with me. Um, Yeah. Yeah, looking at these pages from the graphic novel, uh, just they they immediately take me right to that story. Well, that's my question answered. Yes. There was an an interesting moment in that story in in 160 where um, you remember at the end of the story when they grab Ayana and start to pull her through? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then... Kitty loses contact for a moment. Yeah. Um, because when they finally pull her through, she's 16. She's yeah. not a little girl anymore, right? Yeah. Well, it was my suggestion to Chris. I said, how can she have aged and spent those years in Belasco's domain if she was still in contact with Kitty's hand and, and Kitty could feel her? There had to be a breaking contact yeah. there. Uh-huh. Chris goes, oh, yeah, that's right. So I said, okay, so I broke contact. Oh, I got her again, you know. And then she comes through and she's 16. So what happened during those years? Yeah. I guess it was four years, right? Uh-huh. And then and Chris goes, later on he says, I'm glad you suggested to do that because he got a whole series out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He got that four-issue series Magic. with Ileana yep. and, yep. and all that, you know. 
which was also featured on um, on Pat Robertson Seven Hundred Club. Oh, of course oh, it was. Huh. I don't want to see this video. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've been. <laughs> yeah. I've been threatening. What I need to do is I need to get the get the tape out and then have a transfer to DVD because uh, you know tape doesn't last all that long, and I hope it's still in good shape. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, con- congratulations, Brent. You were the first person to make us want to go watch Pat Robertson. <laughs> I apologize for that, and I apologize that uh, for traumatizing. Uh, was it Sean when you were 10? <laughs> oh, it was Jerry. Yeah, it was me, Jerry. I'm not traumatized in any way. I mean, it, I, I ate it, it up. had a positive impact. Remember? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Remember how he said he was a mass murderer? <laughs> yeah. I learned so much. Yeah. No, it just uh, the 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 imagery and seeing it was it was um it was my days of future past. You know, I, I was I was too young to read Days of Future Past new. So, uh, and admittedly, I got this out of a back issue bin, but um, not that long after it had been published. And uh, I mean that for me, I read this prior to reading Days of Future Past, and it was my first experience with an alternate universe. X-Men and you know I, I had no idea that that could happen and uh, to see things play out so poorly for them uh, which is something that continues to happen in every alternate reality for the X-Men so why not our X-Men of course their day is coming but uh, yeah oh man I just love that story I'll always love that story no your uh, limbo story and Days of Future well, Days Past. Days of Future yes. Past, too. That was in reference to 160. Right. Sure. I mean, Days of Future Past is one of the greats. Clearly, that, that period in limbo was Jerry's Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me, let me ask you guys left. a question. Have you seen the, uh, the, the, the recent X-Men movie with that is the Days of Future Past story, isn't it? Is, it, is that out yet? Or is that yes. yes. Yep, it's out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've all yeah. seen that. What do you think of it? This is Jim. I, I dug it. I mean, I, I, I thought personally that they, they, they nailed the concept. I mean, if I were still a purist, I would, as opposed to purifier, let's, let's just uh, keep that clear. I, I, you know, I would have taken exception with, with the characters used and all that, but I, but I thought it nailed the essence of what Claremont tried to do in that yeah. story and show that the future can be a dark place if, if, if we keep going on this path. And and I thought the ending of it was was poetic because it basically undid everything that Brian or uh, that um, not Brian Singer uh, who came after. The director of X Men: The Last Stand was Brett Ratner. From everything that was screwed up in X Three was basically negated. So so as a fan, I I loved it. Well, then I'm going to have to see it now. Yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. It was a really fun movie, yeah. Um, well, if I'd known you hadn't seen it, Brent, I wouldn't have given away the ending. <laughs> oh, jeez, that's right. They yeah. read poetry in that movie? Yeah, that's it. That's it, yeah. <laughs> we did actually discuss it on a previous episode, for those who are interested, listeners. Editor's note, that was episode 18, and as always, you can find that at greatexpectations.libsyn.com. Okay. My hunch is, Brent, you would dig it, so I would recommend it. We, if you, you you get us that Pat Robertson DVD, we'll get you a DVD of Days of Future Past. <laughs> All right. And bonus, it's deal. got a young William Stryker in it. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, that's right. 
Yeah, that's yeah, right. right. Exactly. William Stryker does appear. Spoilers. Sorry. Spoilers. Interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, now I, now I really have to see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, should we? Do we want to talk about first? Yes. And where people can find him and. Yes, we want to do. Why don't you uh, ask well, him now, a question? Well, now that we're wrapping away, it up, because we don't want to uh, take up any more of your time. Uh, <laughs> what are you working on currently? Where can people find it? Because they need to. They need to be immersed in this. What have you been working on for the last 18 years? Pimp your stuff. Pimp my stuff. Well, uh, on and off Astro City. Yep. And uh, a lot of what we've been talking about, you know, the 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 in the inspiration and influence that doing the X-Men graphic novel had on me as a comic book artist and a comic book creator has all gone into Astro City. Um, like almost 20 years ago. Let's see, well, yeah, almost 20 yeah. years ago. Uh, this, is, this, this month, actually last month, October, was actually the uh, 20th anniversary of my uh, involvement with Astro City. Yeah, wow. Oh, my God. Just starting to draw it. And uh, the um, the impact that doing series, doing like the X Men books and uh, Strike Force Moratori, uh, which I haven't been able to work my way around to yet. Somerset <laughs> Home. <laughs> so that story has been republished. And for anyone who's never read Strike Force Moratori and you're looking for an eighty sci fi masterpiece. Yeah. Seek that out. I suck at that. I, I've seen Jerry try to sell more people at our local comic shop on that book than <laughs> any other book. <laughs> and every time he sees it, he's like, you got to try this. Anybody it's wonderful. Buy, you got to try this. It's wonderful. I well, love I, that I certainly appreciate it. I just got a, I just got a, a relatively small royalty check from uh, Strike Force Moratory, which is kind of awesome. cool. That's awesome. probably, that was probably Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> Brent, I am dead serious about buying pages from that, by the way. We're, yeah, okay. We're gonna work that out. Oh yeah, we 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 will. And actually, I'm I'm in the process of you know loading pages up onto uh, my website, uh, and I have a lot of, a lot more Strikeforce Moratorium pages. But I'm being, starting out with Astro City, and then we'll we'll eventually get to Strikeforce. Sure, sure, understandable. Yeah. <sighs> Any more X Men in your future? Oh, I'd really like to consider it. Um, you know, when, when there's not work to be done in Astro City. Uh, unfortunately for X-Men and any, anything else, uh, Kurt is delivering scripts monthly now. So Uh-oh. I, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm really busy working on getting that, that book out every month. And uh, that's, uh, uh, that's fine by us. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be back in production on it. I mean, there was that, that long hiatus so that we could at least put out the first year monthly, which we did. And uh, I'm, yep. I'm currently working on issue 18. And okay. I'll put in a little advanced plug on um, on uh, on the current story arc. It's the uh, the Quarles Cracker Jack story. And boy, am I digging it! <laughs> it, it is way cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Is, has that been solicited yet, or is it too soon for that? Uh, well, 17 is coming out this month, so. And I'm I'm sort of semi okay. behind my schedule, my deadline on 18, and uh, uh, so it, I guess we'll take partial credit for that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we, yeah, guys, we just made a... we just made the next issue of Astro City late. Good good job. <laughs> no, you did not. 
Any anything else you wanna you wanna uh, promote, Brent? Oh boy, nothing comes to mind. Okay. Uh, you guys, you guys were pretty thorough about the X-Men graphic novel. You actually, uh, uh, your question uh, stimulated me to uh, remember some things that I had forgotten. Actually. Yeah. No, I'll tell you what. The the pleasure was ours, and 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 uh, you know, about a half dozen more come to mind. I, I'm I'm going to spare you from that, but but it, it was it's been awesome. Well, if you want to follow up, you know, if you got some more questions, you can you can uh, send shoot me an email. We'll set up a time for you to call if you want. Oh, that's wonderful. That is awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you on the internet? Uh, com. Go there. There's good stuff there. I promise yeah. you. And I, I, and I promise you, I, I plan to do more uh, news updates and stuff than I have been in the past few years. <laughs> we hear that from every artist on earth. Yes. You're not alone. Yeah. Yep. You have friends. And actually on, uh, our Facebook is, uh, my, my Facebook page is open to the public too. And, okay. Uh, it's uh, Brent Eric Anderson, so you can avoid, uh, you know, um, evil clones. There uh, are a lot of you out there. There's a lot of Brent Andersons out there, yeah. Brent mm-hmm. Anderson, the plumber, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right, Lauren. Well, we thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, well, I appreciate your interest, and uh, it's been a pleasure. It has been, Brent. Thank you very, very much. I'm going to do everything I can to get out west to see you at a con next yeah. year. All right. Finally, for the first time. I spent far too much time at work today looking at that commission page where I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Hey, Thank Brent, you. Brent, this is Jim. I come out to San Diego Comic Con every year. I'll come look for you next year. Yeah, I don't know that I'll be in San Diego. Uh, oh, okay. Well, then I won't. But <laughs> it'll depend. If, I, if, if I'm a headliner, <laughs> I'll be sure. there. I'll, uh, but, uh, I'll talk them into inviting you. All right. And actually, I'm, uh, the, the convention I, I'm looking forward to uh, every year now is uh, the uh, the Big Wow in San Jose. I was going to ask if, if oh. that was the con, because I, I know a lot of the artists I'm interested in primarily are like to, to do that show. Yeah, it, it, it's all homework for me, and, and the fellow that runs it, one of the fellows that are partners in it, is uh, a kid I met when he was 14 years old across the street from where the convention center is now. <laughs> so for me it's like uh, it's like old home old home week that's awesome awesome well I put the bug in my wife's ear and I'm hoping to get out there in right, 2015 so now, so now I'm responsible for you putting insects in your wife's head well I learned that from Uncanny 160 <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right she's got to get her skeleton out somehow yeah. oh my poor wife she's a nice lady I wouldn't do that no I'm glad to hear that <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Have a great evening. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah. So let's wrap up. JJ, tell people where they can find you and what of yours they need to experience. All right. I will tell you that as well. Thank you. Um, so uh, if you guys uh, didn't hear the beginning, I... I'm one of the reviewers on comicbookresources.com. I review uh, comics for Marvel, DC, and everyone else uh, on a weekly basis. My uh, Twitter handle is QuiGonJim, Q-U-I-G-O-N-J-I-M-M. It's my favorite Twitter handle. <laughs> You're too kind. <laughs> no, it really is. When Which I is weird, because like... he hates Star Wars. And... Uh, <laughs> We'll have to talk about that. I know. And uh, and from time to time, I still do an occasional column 
on GoBackToThePast.com. So, um, thanks, guys. Thanks for uh, having me on. This was well, awesome. Well, you were awesome. Yeah. No, you. you. You brought some serious credibility to this show. I love that. <laughs> no, seriously, one of the things that I really love about what you brought to it is last night I sat down to read the interviews with the creators, and everything that you said about the time, like living through it, is yeah. exactly what Claremont said in huh. the interviews. No way. Like talking no way. about the time, talking about like the graphic novel, how no one was taking it seriously, and how this actually got, I guess this got rushed a little bit. Like it might have come out earlier than it should have. I don't know. Because um, the other ones weren't doing as much as they wanted them to. This came out the same month as number four, right? The New Mutants one. I think they were released. No, it didn't. This came he out. He no? was there. Yeah. The... I was there, but I don't know how well I can recollect because I remember the, the, the horse was lame and I had to walk <laughs> to the comic store. Okay. No, they were, a, it was a quarterly schedule. So this came out at best. It came out, I want to say December of 1982. I think it was originally scheduled for January because that's when the, being a quarterly schedule, the very first one, the Captain Marvel one, did come out in January of 82. I remember that really well. So I think it may have been rushed by maybe a month. Okay. Uh, but I remember it was on a rough quarterly schedule that they were largely sticking to. And you were right. I mean, these these weren't doing all that great. And I think this, and if you remember, there wasn't much that came after either. For this series. I mean, they did some good stuff. The next one was Kill Raven, which nobody remembers. Nobody I never read. read Kill Raven. And, but it was awesome. I, I mean, read I, Star Slammers, which came after. You know what? That it was, one? it was, I'm sorry. Kill Raven came later. Star Slammers was the one after. Star this. Slammers, Walt Simonson is so effing good. It was awesome, but it didn't sell. It didn't sell. It's really good. I think it's still available. Kill Raven came, I think, a couple later that year, but. There's a great She-Hulk one by Byrne, and there's Emperor Doom. Sean, you're looking for a good Doom Doom, story? Emperor Doom is great. I think it was number 22. Uh, I lost track by then. I I think it might have been written by Claremont, but don't quote me on that, and it was drawn by. I can't remember. The dude that, uh, had Hank Pym slap the wasp, or punch the wasp in the eye. Over a black (laughs) eye. Um, Editor's note, Emperor Doom was Marvel Graphic Novel number 27, and it was written by David Michelini and drawn by Bob Hall. You know, if I were an artist, that is not how I want to, would want to be remembered. Hey, you're the guy who drew Hank well, slamming Janet in the he, eye. He effed it up. That's not what this, the script I said, can. and he did it anyway, and it was too late to correct it. They couldn't correct the art, and everybody was super pissed. Yeah. And they're stuck with it to this day. Can't help you there, but, uh, no, it was, I'll put it, it was, in it. It was, uh, it was fun, guys. Uh, call yeah, back anytime. Thanks for, yeah. Oh, you'll no, be back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you will be back. Thank you. So before we leave, let's pimp our stuff for once. Okay. Real quick. Check out our Tumblr, greatexpectations.tumblr.com. We have our own dedicated feed for this podcast now. If you're into that kind of thing, you can find that at greatexpectations.libsyn.com. We are on Twitter at GXPod. We're at, we've got a Facebook group if you're into that kind of thing. What else? I think that's do, it. Do you feel like pimping what we've got coming up in the next episode? 
I don't know if we should get into specifics because we could jinx it. There's we've had one fall out fall uh, through before. True. But we have something special for next time. Old time fans like JJ and I will be excited to hear this stuff. But we will be discussing the New Mutants finally, Sean. We're going to be discussing New Mutants graphic novel number one and issues one through three. And, if we can, special edition, X-Men number one, which I've just discovered. There's a great story at the end of that. Reprint! (coughs) (laughs) There was new material at the end that I want to talk about. And Marvel team-up number 100. Finally, let's do it. Let's make it official. eBay. eBay. Here I come. Okay, so obviously we had to move things around a little bit to fit the Brent Anderson interview in. But uh, hopefully you've already heard our Bob McCloud interview on the New Mutants episode, and you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, and if you enjoyed this interview, we do hope that as a thank you, you will go to iTunes or Stitcher or whoever your podcast aggregator may be and leave us, hopefully, a favorable review. It's the best thing you can do to help our show. All right, we will see you in two weeks. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Goodbye.
This episode has been brought to you by Cry for the Moon Productions. Cry for the Moon!